0: And that was one thing I made sure to do before I ever put any of this stuff out, I crossed my T's, I dotted my I's. And I wanted to make sure that if I was gonna put my neck on the line and stick it out there and actually come up with a theory, the other channels out there that talk about alternative theories about the Egyptian pyramids, have some balls, come up with a theory and stake a claim. Of these channels out there just regurgitate the same speculation and nonsense. Oh, these ancient mysteries, how did they cut the stone? And how did they, what is this for? And blah, blah, blah. Have some balls, come up with a theory, and stake a claim. Blast making is one of the most ancient industries on the planet. an Egyptian financier. If you look at the configuration of the original apparatus to produce ammonia, it has the exact same configuration and the exact same physics as the red pyramid. start building structures like the passage chamber structures of ireland eventually moving into the pyramids of egypt to help re-establish the civilization and these are basic infrastructure projects that would enable them to re-establish themselves in these new areas by producing chemicals fertilizers etc etc that are going to allow the civilization to continue to grow have some balls I will take two Yeah
1: Yep I'll take two please. two cosmic celestial balls And attach them like a jetpack To my body as I whirl and twirl through the cosmos Absolutely Absolutely Hello Fire Tribe How are you? Hope that you're well because we are well and we are excited to bring you this episode today. It is I, the Homie Romy, here to void you across the Duat onto the other side. You see, each episode of Rising from the Ashes is a deepening of understanding within character development, uh, development upon series of research. And if you've been listening to the show this month, you know that we have gone deep down the pyramid paradigm, and today is no different. In fact, today we will go deeper down into the pyramid paradigm with Jeffrey Drum. He's got a great series of work, hands-on extensive research into Egypt, into the pyramids, and we are grateful to bring on as a guest co-host this episode benjamin balderson we figured with jeffrey's research and his theories that we could bring on benjamin balderson who is a working alchemist and see what he thinks about jeffrey's theories so today's great I'm really excited to bring this episode to you guys and of course got to do some just good old house cleaning here we would love for you guys to join the telegram group chat. why? That's a great question let me tell you why. One it's awesome. I don't even use, I don't use Reddit, Tumblr or you know any of these other apps and social medias. I only use telegram. I like it. I like the platform of it and I like that we have a growing family that's on there, people that are just as inquisitive as we are, as Dan and I, and just as inquisitive as you. And we get to communicate, and together, (laughs) sharing awesome articles, things about our lives, sharing videos, uh, awesome music, anything and everything, even PDFs, I like Telegram for the PDFs. You can just upload a PDF and share it to your bud what a great thing that is and so i am on there and uh, and i like to chat and dan is on there and he likes to chat everybody likes to chat it's a chatting platform platform for, for chatting anywho uh we would love for you guys to do that And if you want to support Dan and I even further, you can click the link in the show notes to the Patreon and subscribe for that for the bonus content. Because, in fact, we do have a bonus content. We um, have each individual shows that we make. um, And if we do other interviews on other shows, we'll post it right there to that feed wall and videos and and fun stuff. I'm still editing out a couple of these travel vacation uh, episodes I did where I did some like on the ground interviews with people and I like to when I travel, oh buddy, let me tell you when I hit the streets, when I hit the roads, the open roads, you know I got the microphone. you know I got my eyes peeled for any sort of strange happenings so. I have some of those recorded. I'm going to put some music to it and put that on there and all that good stuff. And yeah, you guys, um, if you want to support us, you can do that. And we really support you guys supporting whoever. (laughs) You're here now, and that's what matters. So if you like this episode today, make sure to share it with somebody that you know is also interested in these topics, ancient Egypt, hidden histories, hidden mysteries, um, the hidden mysteries of history, uh, <laughs> all of the above, right? All right, everybody. Well, I won't hold you back any further. All I want is for you to have a great and wonderful rest of your day and enjoy this segment of RFTA News with our buddy Adam Stokes. rrF.
2: How are you, you doing, man? Trust.
3: I'm all right. I'm all right. I begin work tomorrow, actually.
2: Begin work? Oh, back oh, to school, huh? Already? Back to the school. Yep. At oh, the new man. school,
3: I'm teaching at, so I have a whole really kind of fancy orientation. I'm actually looking forward to it.
2: Oh,
1: cool. Oh, that is awesome. awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's gonna be a fresh new start. Actually, that goes right into the astrology she was just telling <laughs> us is about to happen. That's <laughs> really cool.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm. I'm super excited.
2: Yeah. You got a lot of a lot of work, a lot of uh, um, bringing in, uh, taking in of knowledge, and separating some facts going on.
3: Yeah, well, he, it, with this <laughs> job, I'm, it's a it's a Latin teaching position, um, but it's a little bit it's a Latin level three, so um, I have to be more on my game than I kind of have been in the past. Yeah. So it's a lot of review, and I know Latin like the back of my head. I could do, I could, I could recite Latin in my drink in my dreams, but. Um, I want to oh, make wow. sure you know that I'm as on top of things as I can possibly be.
1: That's an interesting question. You don't want you, that one either. student that's uh, like kind of just ace you. You know, you go to a new yeah. new school, start a new class, and you just have that one kid who's just like, oh,
2: my dear, oh, you yes,
1: know, yeah. and this, uh Yeah,
2: you gotta be on top <laughs> of. It, I used to kind of be that kid,
3: and my my Latin teacher was like, "Man, you're you're an a hole." So, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> do, you, do you ever have dreams in Latin? Like where you're actually
3: Yeah, yeah, Latin? actually sometimes I have dreams in Latin. I have dreams in German. Oh, wow. Um happens quite quite often. Yeah.
2: Oh, that's interesting, man. I've never even thought about that before cuz I only speak English obviously, but uh I know some Spanish too, but I've never had dreams that I'm speaking Spanish. Maybe other people are, but not me
3: yeah it's kind of weird yeah. i have i've had on several occasions whole dreams i'm just i'm back in germany because i lived there for a while and i'm speaking it or uh i have some like roman dreams i in i'm speaking latin um <laughs> really really weird really weird
2: that's man. cool man that's fun uh yeah so you you'll have a lot of new stuff to tell uh your new uh class right
3: yeah you yeah especially with
2: very fun journeys this summer
3: yeah, yeah, the the trip to Rome. So I'm definitely going to show some yeah. pictures of
2: that. Yeah, that's fun, man. Well,
1: what do you got, man? Our for last us chat today? was really good, man. I gotta I gotta just say real quick before we start going, that last chat I really re-listen, I re-listened to it a couple times, and uh, that was that was a good one. I I really appreciate your knowledge for the mounds or your thirst for the mounds. Uh, and yeah, like I had to re-listen to it because I was just like. We went on some pretty deep dives in that little chat. It was it only did, like a half did. an that hour, was, but it was great. It
3: was pretty deep, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, deeper than I thought it would be. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I I enjoyed that one. Well, I think I think you guys will like this one. I haven't told you the one about the Delaware Mounds, have I? The what? The Delaware Mounds.
2: Delaware Delaware. Nope. I don't think okay, so. Okay,
3: then, then if you guys will know, yeah, I I'd I never told it to you guys. So, um. This is a picture of me and my kid, of my kids. This was back in the first day, January 1st of 2021. So it's been about a year and a half now. Um, School was about to start again. So I put them in the car and I had them travel with me to a couple of mound sites in Delaware, which I did not even know existed until I read uh, my friend Greg Little's book on uh, Native American mounds. and He said there were three or four mounds in Delaware. Delaware is not that far from me. In fact, my the, my former school, uh, where I taught last year, is right on the Delaware border. You can actually walk to the Delaware Bridge uh, from where I teach. Um, so I drove them over there, and we visited uh, several mounds. One was an earthen mound in Cape Henlopen Park, and uh, the other one was a Delaware seashore, uh, a sea. Uh, excuse me, a Delaware shell mound. In Delaware Seashore State Park, which is right near Rehoboth mm. Beach, which, if you're ever on the East Coast, you should totally check out that beach. It's a great beach. Uh, but anyway, um, these two mounds are really important because they go way back and they seem to reflect possible influence of uh, the Hopewell, whom I've mentioned before as being in Midwest America. But there's some evidence for them that they might have gone all the way to the Atlantic. And the article that I wrote was titled Did the Hopewell Empire Extend to the Atlantic? Um, And that's because seashell mounds um, can be traced exclusively, as Dr. Little notes in his book, um, to uh, the Hopewell. So uh, the Hopewell, in contrast to the Adena, who uh, buried people in their mounds, the Hopewell didn't, and they made a lot of seashell mounds that we know of. Um, And so this appears to, long story short, Uh, these mounds appear to be a direct link, possible direct link to the Hopewell, and that's the case, then that means that their empire was a lot bigger than what uh, mainstream uh, archaeologists and mainstream researchers uh, think, that it was just mainly Mm. in the Midwest. Of course, the Midwest was their capital. That was their headquarters. That was their main base of operation, but they seem to have extended pretty darn far. Um, And other evidence for this, um, we have the um, Los Lunas Stone down in New Mexico. We have the Los Lunas Stone down in New Mexico. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay, I had some
3: oh, sound. Yeah.
2: Issues.
3: yeah, the Los Lunas Stone down in New Mexico. Um, so we know that the Hopewell, if they are, as I argue in my research, descended from the ancient Israelites, we know that their empire seems to have spread really far. But not just to the southwest as you have in New Mexico, but also uh it seems to have gone to the Atlantic. So these are really fascinating. I was really fascinated by the mounds. As you can see, the the looks of the, the looks on my kids' faces in the picture. They weren't as impressed as I was, but it was a nice it was a nice road trip. It was a really nice road trip, one of the best I've ever had. We went to get pizza afterwards, um, and it was all good.
2: <laughs> um, I was gonna bring up, one <laughs> of wrap it up in- with pizza. We were just in uh, San Francisco, Roman and I and some others, and when he was talking about the formation of San Francisco and why the hills, he said it was because they, everything was there was a bunch of seashell mounds there,
1: mm-hmm. the ahohones,
2: yeah, and 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 so they just built the roads over the top of them. So, th- do you yep. think that maybe the Hopewell could have been out there? Or do you think that, I that think was that's possibly a different, I think a different a different group? They went
3: to California, yeah. And you have giant traditions. Uh, you have giant traditions in California, which may or may not be yep. the same people as the giant mound builders uh, that are um, that are linked with the with the Hopewell. So I think it's very very possible. Hmm. And remember, a lot of these mounds uh, that once existed were destroyed, like you said, people built right on top of them. Yeah. So um, it's unfor- unfortunately because people built right on top of the California mounds, it's hard for you know archaeologists and anthropologists to get in there and see you know what was really Is there any material in these in these mounds that we can you know date um, and stuff like that? But I think it's very possible that the Hopewell got to the west coast, just as I think it's possible that they got to the east coast.
2: Hmm. Interesting. And they're the only ones that do the seashell mounds. There wasn't any other. They mainly
3: do the seashell mounds. Yes.
2: Okay. Is there any other like maybe evidences that they could have been out west, or do you know anything else about that, or?
3: Um, just with, I mean, you have, like I said, the Los Lunas uh, Stone in New Mexico,
2: Yeah, that's um, pretty close.
3: which is a Semitic, which is a Semitic text, um, which has Semitic writing on it. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, if they got to New Mexico, it's possible they got to California as well. I'm trying to think of, and that's something I can look up myself. If there are any, <laughs> uh, traditions or inscriptions in Hebrew, uh, in the California region.
1: Mm. um i i'm curious about uh what your thoughts are on or or if you can give us a a chronology on the indigenous american uh civilization as like you know you have the hopewell and edina i think existing at the same time yeah that were bigger uh you know bigger why bigger groups and then did they start to fragment off slowly after that? And is there a specific chronology? Uh, and yeah. do, do you have any numbers on chronology on that?
3: Yeah, yeah. So, Hopewell, era, um, woodland and Mississippi periods, um, and scholars debate this. Uh, I would say roughly 500 BCE to 400 CE, and then after that, they seem to disappear suddenly. Um, and then you have people who make mounds and imitation of the mound builders. So Cahokia um, in Illinois, um, which is a really impressive mound, is probably an imitation. Although there is evidence that it dates, uh, it could date back to before the Common Era as well. Um, so basically, that mound building culture leaves kind of a cultural imprint on uh, the Native mm. American people. They inter- they intermarry with Native Americans, and then Native Americans continue the mound-building tradition. Uh, smaller mounds, uh, less elaborate than the mound-builders, but they continue that tradition, um, it, uh, and they carry it uh, much into much later centuries.
2: Hmm. Do you have any... Uh... So I think
3: Chahokia, I think the height of it is around 1,100 feet ce or 1100 ad if i'm if i'm not mistaken but it's late it's much later than the uh than the a lot of the Hopewell and adena mounds
2: do you know what the purpose mm. of building the mounds was do you was
3: for the adena especially it was um a burial burial of uh burial of nobility mm. it seems for the hope well they seem to have been ceremonial so like temples and i i think i mentioned before um, the dimensions of and the basically the design of the Howell Mounds very much mirrors the design of Israelite tabernacles and temples that you get in the mm. old testament.
1: The, okay, so the, the the connections that I love that would love to like within the next year kind of break down would be the the um the Irish Egyptian connection and then the Israelite uh, Jewish-American connection, because those two, those, oh man, that's super interesting. I've heard so much about the...
3: I think the Irish uh, mounds are from the same mound builders and from the same type of Semitic mound builders that I identify with the Hotewell and Adena. I think there's a direct connection there. And one of the mounds, um, I'm doing some research on this now uh, for a group I'm with. I think one of those mounds in Ireland has the remains of the prophet Jeremiah from the Old Testament.
2: Which mound is that?
3: Um trying to think of the actual I can get you the name. I'm blanking on that now, but it's one of the cairns. Uh, if I'm pronouncing Wow. It
1: right. Yeah. Oh wow. That would make that would make sense. The cairns being like some like special type of marker for old saints or mystics, you know. Yeah. As yeah. Uh, as as interesting. Um, do you know any good sources for uh, electromagnetic ley line maps?
3: Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs>
1: hard to find good sources man and like i need to lock it down i'm still looking for something that isn't so sporadic all all the sources i try to look at they're just all like very flashy and it's kind of hard to follow i'm I'm looking for a someone that can put together uh and I'm, i'm wondering why why is do you do you have any thoughts as to why the uh, electromagnetic grid is something that is like so hard to to map out and like just free from public knowledge
3: yeah I, I think you know mainstream uh the mainstream always kind of uh looks down on the ley line idea um but i know um uh, if you ever watch the show ancient aliens there are a couple people who have done a lot of work on the ley lines i'm trying to remember mm-hmm. trying to get the names off the top of my head and of course i'm drawing a yeah. blank but they've done some work on that. Um, I've had a couple of friends who have done it just in North America, um, mm-hmm. looking at kind of the connections between the different mounds, which is really fascinating, and the ley lines that connect the different mounds. Um, but globally, I'm not sure who has done work on that. I need to I need to research that more.
1: Even even North America is fine too, uh for that. And I think it correlates with maybe Some of the sacred numbers along the parallels, or what some sort of parallel some of the parallels are stronger than others, like that 33rd parallel, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, sweet, uh, yeah, the cairn connection, yeah, man, the Irish Cairns. It's it's a it's gonna be a big deep dive, but we're decoding that it's happening, the threads (laughs) are being pulled, and we will. We will weave the quilt of this yeah. major understanding. You're a huge part of that, brother. So always appreciate the gnosis you bring in.
3: yeah uh, thank you, thank you. I, I do my best. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> all right, man. Well, is that all you got for us today, Adam?
3: That's all for uh, for uh, this week. So, like I said, I have That's my nice. little, um, my my old uh, articles and stuff up here. So each week we meet, I try to take one off the shelf and. See what I can bring you, but a lot Excellent. I have a
2: lot of good stuff. Actually, oh yeah, you, you do, brother. That was it's great. always good. Yeah, that that's an interesting uh connection there with the Hopewell. I didn't realize that they were the only like shell mound builders, and the fact that we heard mm-hmm. about that in San Francisco kind of uh, made me go, "Oh, well, that's interesting." Yeah, I remember you mentioned may, that
3: last week. Yeah,
2: because you know people talk about maybe they built like San Francisco right over the top of pyramids. That's why there's such steep hills. But in in some ways. Kinda.
3: I can believe that those hills are steep as heck, man. Yeah.
2: So I don't totally believe, yeah, I totally believe that. Yeah. So yeah. that's, that's yeah. really that's interesting. That's like
3: you're climbing in the air, Indiana Jones climbing up the temple on those hills, man. <laughs>
2: yeah. They're pretty yeah, I mean, gnarly to walk up to. Too. Yeah. yeah. I haven't <laughs> been,
3: to, I've never been to San Francisco. I have friends who've lived there. I have family who live there. Everybody hates those damn hills, man. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Is, is it, if you do uh, come out to San Francisco, though, let us know. Uh, we'll do. It'd be cool. Yeah, like the. Have you been to California? Done any California yeah, I've Cal- trips? I've
3: been to San Diego. I've been to Southern California. A couple oh, of times. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. yeah, yes. I love yeah. San. I wish I could live in San Diego. I'm too. I'm too flat, poor, completely fat, <laughs> flat broke, to live in San Diego. <laughs> yeah. But I would. That's expensive. Yeah, now, I would either yeah. live there or, or in the Midwest. I can. I can afford the Midwest. I can't afford San Diego.
1: Yeah, yeah. the in- Southern California is. Or San Francisco insane. for that
3: matter. But yeah. I oh love, yeah, I even love worse.
2: Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you adam amazing as my always. pleasure uh yes yeah have a good one man wish you well yeah, thank you hope, hope school keep on building well. those
1: mountains of information yeah i i keep, keep i like teaching,
3: that. I, I,
2: I, I, keep teaching <laughs> these kids right man
3: yes yes <laughs> i'd go try and them on the right path
2: yes nice all right um, brother
1: until next time
3: Alright,
1: thanks. Alright, take care guys. Have a good one. Bye. Bye bye. Oh, bye bye. Bye bye. And also, hello, Fayotrab. That was RFTA news. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Diving deep with Adam is always fun. Enjoy this interview with Jeffrey Drum.
2: Fire Tribe, welcome to Rising from the Ashes. I'm Daniel Naki Dan. I am the homie Romy. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello. Today we are joined with by a co-host from Odin's Alchemy, Benjamin Balderson. How you doing, Ben?
4: Hail, Dan. Hail, Romy. I'm yeah. doing Hail. fantastic. And Absolutely to the- honored to be on here this morning. I actually had been checking uh, Mr. Jeff out before uh, a little bit, and actually, uh, I think I watched one or two videos before uh, I went and got together with you guys this last weekend. I um, oh, had a gas, and then uh, that had been. And so, when you asked me on to this, I was like, Are you serious right now? Because <laughs> I, mean, I, I was just checking this dude out.
0: So, <laughs> that, this guy's a mess. That's awesome. Uh, I see the cat. I see the cat in your lap over there, man. Awesome.
4: <laughs> yeah, she she she's like magic. If I turn, if I get on an interview, it doesn't matter if she's been gone for four hours because she's I'm on a farm, I, I live off grid, uh, and and have my own little self-sufficient farm with cows and chickens and alpacas and stuff. And she'll be gone for four hours, and I'll get on a podcast, and like magic, she pops up right behind the computer. Like, you need me to step on these oh, keys. Yeah
0: dude there's that's why i I gotta lock myself in my office anytime i do recording yeah i have i have three and i was just out there every sunday morning we go out and spend some porch time and like they are so indoor cats that they will not attempt to run away whatsoever so i can just take them out of my front porch they plop down in my lap i'll hit the vape drink some tea and just chill out there on the porch in the morning it's awesome you know there's something funny
1: Uh, but Dan cats the other day, uh in, in our in one of our interviews, uh talking about like what was the uh the 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 symbolism behind the word cat, you know, because you, you have all of these um the, these connections to some very interesting words that start with the word cat. Yeah. Cataclysm. Cataclysm and And then I was thinking about, you know, birds, um, and they they love to be on power lines. like it's it's really interesting. You would think, you know, humans are constantly trying to get away from uh, you know electrical device. Well, some of us are trying to get away from electrical <laughs> devices because we're like, I need to get away from the electricity. But there's certain uh, certain things that, that different animals are uh, attuned to with the uh, some sort of, of these uh, electrical devices, and it's, it's interesting. And the cats love being right on the fucking computer.
0: Like, what? It's cool, man. Yeah, so the cat is one of the great symbols of ancient Egypt as well. Mm-hmm. And as you know, within my work, I love reinterpreting these esoteric symbols away from the perspective of the dynastic Egyptian interpretation and more towards the perspective of chemistry and science and the the cat Bastet, the god Bastet, mm-hmm. which is represented in the dynastic Egyptian religion, it actually has a symbolic representation that's directly related to chemistry in my world. Um, that's one of the ones that's coming up in the second book in the series. Um, but I've talked about, you know, the scarab, the bull. In one of my recent videos, I was talking about how the god Amon, which is the god of fertility, is actually a representation of ammonia, which is yeah. where we get the word for ammonia, Is the etymology is directly related to the god Amon. But that's a representation of a chemical, which eventually became deified within the dynastic egyptian religion and incorporated it as a symbol of a god but it was actually related directly to chemistry there's there's practical interpretations of all of those symbols across the board
2: and i just want to finish introducing that was the voice of jeffrey drum (laughs) author of land of cam jeffrey how you doing thank you for being on the show today uh we're already getting started so let's just keep going man (laughs)
0: yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for having me on. I, I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs>
2: uh, if you give the uh, if you could just give the people a little bit of background about yourself, uh, travels, and how you got into uh, the chemistry aspect of the pyramids.
0: Sure, man. So um, it all started, I guess, kind of around 2017. Um, I was working for an IT company at the time. And I had just broken up with a girlfriend and long story short, I hit the jackpot on a commission check one of these days. And I was somehow, I don't know jack shit about the IT industry. I was just a sales guy. Basically, we just sold computers to all these people. So I hit the jackpot one month, got a huge commission check. And you know, I was like, no, what, fuck it. I'm going to go to Egypt and do something that I've always wanted to do. And I'm going to go spend this money and go have a good time. So I was working with a guy at the time who had a theory that the Great Pyramid was designed to produce electricity, which is the conventional explanation in the alternative theories about the pyramids, A, they only focus on the Great Pyramid, which I highly, highly disagree with. If you're going to come up with a theory, it should be comprehensive and address the function of all the structures, not just single out one of them and imply that none of them do anything else. So he was working on the Great Pyramid, implying that it was an electrical device for the production of electricity. I was very interested in this, and I was working with the guy, and I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go to Egypt to do some on-site research, get some pictures and videos and stuff, et cetera, et cetera, to kind of help collaborate with this guy on developing his theory. So I go, and we start touring all the sites with Yusuf, and we go to Abu Sir, and I see that collection bowl that I've talked about that has that red quartzite conduit leading into the collection bowl. And that was the first site that I visited that was completely not compatible, A, with the dynastic burial theory, because if this was a burial site, why is there this sophisticated conduit network running underneath the structure? And why are there collection bowls? And why are there all of these functional pieces of the site if all of this thing is supposed to be a tomb? So that didn't make sense. It also wasn't compatible with the theory of producing electricity either. because I wasn't seeing anything there that, Resonated with me that these structures were designed to produce electricity. There's not, no sort of mechanical, you know, components or anything. There are mechanical components, but in a much simpler way. So it didn't necessarily indicate anything related to electricity. So then we get a chance to go inside the red pyramid. And I've discussed this at length on my channel and on Instagram and all that stuff. And there's the chemical staining in the walls and the intense smell of ammonia. And the conventional explanation for the smell of Ammonia is the bats. All the staining is caused by the bats and the smell of ammonia is caused by the bats. Well, fast forward five years later and we get the chemical analysis back from the ACIDA project, that Russian research team, where they took samples of all that material. And it turns out it's strontium along with a host of other elements. The the complexity of the chemical analysis of the staining inside that structure is literally the smoking gun proof that these were functional machines. Uh, But long story short, smelled the ammonia inside the structure, started researching all the other structures in Egypt. And when I got home, I was already on the role of investigating the function of the Egyptian pyramids as related to chemistry. It was really the ammonia. And I knew that ammonia was used to produce fertilizer. I knew how important fertilizer would be to an ancient civilization that was large enough and sophisticated enough to produce structures like the Egyptian pyramids. Mm-hmm. You can build that, you got a large civilization, you got a lot of people. You got to feed the people. So, having fertilizers would have exponentially increased their ability to produce food, et cetera, et cetera. So, that's when I really started to kind of hit the ground running, looking at chemistry. And proverbially speaking, as I started to like pull the thread, everything became unraveled, and one thing led to another. And I started looking at methane, and then I started to find the connections between the scarab and the collection of manure and the deification of cattle, all of these things connected to methane and one thing after another. And you know, after about two years of research and investigation and kind of preliminary writing, I had finally established this theory that the Egyptian pyramids were designed to produce a series of different chemicals. And that was, long story short, the function of those structures. Man, that's it, something that clicked
1: for me was the bat temple, right? The temple with the bats. And you're like, this isn't, this isn't from bats. This ammonia smell isn't from bats. Oh, I but- knew immediately bat god in egypt was the cow the, ga- the god bat was a cow god and so i'm wondering if that uh temple was devoted to bat it was, they were actually like maybe hinting that it was devoted to the cow or maybe that was the the methane production uh where they would bring in the cow shit and that was like the bat temple maybe or, or something along those lines
0: so the, the pyramid, so it, it all starts with the step Pyramid of Saqqara, which that's where I proposed that the methane was being produced, and the step Pyramid is a very kind of rudimentary structure when you compare it to all the rest of them. It's really just one excavated chamber that goes down into the bedrock with an inlet shaft and an outlet shaft, and that's really all you need for a methane digestion chamber. So the step pyramid is the methane-producing one, and then the red pyramid is where you have that smell of ammonia, and it's just a—it's a way for a the guides and b the caretakers of the site and the you know, caretakers of conventional Egyptology to explain away the staining inside that structure and the smell of ammonia is to say that it comes from bat urine, and they imply that there was a huge colony of bats that once inhabited that structure. And I'm certainly not saying that's untrue, but I personally have never seen any bats inside that structure. We've been in plenty of other structures in Egypt where we do find bats, and there is no staining and there is no smell of ammonia. And also, so if it was urine or bat guano, it would smell like urine. You know, if you go to any litter box or you know any sort of animal-produced urine, it's going to have an organic urine smell. And it's going to stink. But inside the Red Pyramid, it is pure chemical ammonia. There's no organic type of smell. It doesn't smell like urine in there. There's a very distinct difference between those two things, which is why I was so interested in it. And there's this video from my 2017 trip where I'm talking to Yusuf, and you can hear me in the video, like, smelling the ammonia. I'm like, man, it smells like ammonia in here. And he's like, yes, the ammonia is coming from the third chamber. And it's from that final chamber where the smell is coming. So anyway, that's just the conventional explanation is that, hey, it's the bats, there's nothing to see here. Oh, don't pay attention to the chemicals staying on the walls and the ammonia smell. That doesn't mean anything, nothing to see here. And the people that go into these structures, they're literally in there for two minutes. The guides don't go in. So this is one thing about traveling to Egypt that a lot of people don't know. You have to have a licensed Egyptology guide with you at all the sites. However, they are not allowed to go with you into the pyramids. And the reason that I was given for that is because there's so much stuff in there that they cannot explain. <sighs> if you go in there with the Egyptology guide, well, where are all the hieroglyphs? Well, they didn't put hieroglyphs inside these structures, but they did inside these ones and blah, blah, blah. So there's no hieroglyphs in there. Well, what about the engineering? Like another thing, so how are you going to get it? So you may have seen my episode, The Fallacies of the Pharaonic Burial Hypothesis. And one of the questions that come up is how do you get the damn bodies down? Down in there so you have these incredibly steep basically three by three shafts that lead down into these structures how are you getting the pharaonic burial down into into the pyramid there's no steps there's no easy way to get a sarcophagus down into that sh- shaft unless you're sliding it with a rope and you would have to build a scaffold on the outside of the structure raise your pharaonic sarcophagus up the scaffold you drop it down into the shaft, and then you carry it all the way up into the burial chambers. Well, if you look at the configuration of the Great Pyramid, if you go into the, sh- the entry, opening, it takes you down into the subterranean chamber. And there's no way to get from that subterranean chamber into the king's chamber unless you use the Welsh, which is a very jagged kind of rugged shaft that goes up the middle of the structure. So what do you do? Do you slide the body down into the subterranean chamber? And then you drag it up into the king's chamber with a rope in your golden sarcophagus with the body of the pharaoh just flinging around in there. So there's so many things about these structures that are incompatible with the burial hypothesis that they don't let the guides go in there. So most people, like at the Red Pyramid, they go in there for two seconds. They're like, oh, it smells like piss in here, and they leave.
4: That makes a lot of sense because anybody that thinks you when you're on these tours, those guides usually are not, yeah, they don't have answers for a number of things. That that makes complete sense.
0: It's really sad. And, you know, people pay thousands and thousands of dollars to go on these expeditions to Egypt. And you get on a tour bus with like 20 other people. They pull up at the site. You know, they take some pictures from the gram on the outside of the structure. Everybody's, you know, they take some fancy pictures and then they leave. They're there for five freaking minutes, and then they go to the next site and they do all of the pyramids within a couple of days. Well, every time that I've gone, this is going to be my this year, will be my fourth expedition to Egypt. Probably spent a cumulative of maybe four hours inside of the Red Pyramid, just investigating that structure. So it's pretty crazy how quickly people get in and out of these things, and there's other quote unquote researchers out there on the internet that you know pop in and out and they're gone
2: so how did you come to the conclusion that they were probably manufacturing chemicals in these pyramids like what to you kind of gave it away what made you what was your epiphany that you had that you're like oh i know what this is fuck
0: oh yeah yeah so that's a great question um, so, all of my research really focused initially on investigating the red pyramid because the configuration of that structure in terms of engineering of the chambers was really indicative of some sort of chemical manufacturing process. They look like reactors. And when I started to investigate the modern process for manufacturing ammonia, I found that, so this is a quote-unquote conspiracy theory that's right in the middle of my theory, is that gentlemen like Fritz Haber, so he's the guy who developed our modern process for creating ammonia, the Haber process. Well, turns out that A, Fritz Haber was a Nazi scientist. B, Fritz Haber was actively traveling to Egypt and investigating Egypt. (laughs) Three, it turns out his original apparatus for the production of ammonia was financed by an Egyptian financier. And if you look at the configuration of the original apparatus to produce ammonia, it has the exact same configuration and the exact same physics as the Red Pyramid. So I started to look at the configuration of the structure and imagining what could this structure do if you started to fill it with water? And that was kind of my first intellectual exercise when I began to develop these theories is just imagining what happens if you fill it with water. And I realized that as the water began to rise in the chamber, the volume in the upper part of the chamber is significantly less the way it's configured. So you basically have a rectangle at the bottom and a tiered triangle at the top. So as you go higher and higher in the chamber, the volume gets lower and lower. And if you look at basic principles of physics, the more you decrease the volume of a gas, the more you're going to increase its temperature and pressure. So I started to look at these structures by evaluating these type of basic physics. So what happens when you fill it with water? What happens when you put a stone into the pump shaft? Well, it's going to raise the water level inside of the structure. So I started looking at these things. My biggest gripe about the function of the Egyptian pyramids is is this whole lost ancient high technology nonsense. I started to look at it from very basic physics principles. Okay, so this is a pump. It's going to move the water up and down inside the structure. Well, what if I put some gas inside of this chamber? What's going to happen to the gases? Oh, well, we're going to increase the temperature and pressure of the gases. That's going to create a chemical reaction. Well, what happens when this chemical reaction in this chamber gets moved to this one? So again, it just kind of, the structures began to speak to me. And the more that I started to listen and pay attention to the configuration, I just slowly started to kind of understand how they operated by just looking at the pump shafts, imagining what would happen with the fluid dynamics inside of the structure. And I give all the credit to the red pyramid because there's staining patterns inside of that structure, which literally put me in the direction of looking at all because I'm not a chemical engineer. I'm not a chemist. I'm not a physicist. Um, I have a degree in psychology and a minor in Spanish. And I just happen to have a passion for all this stuff and I truly believe that the Egyptian pyramids were designed to be reversed engineered one day. They literally encoded all of the knowledge that they had in these structures in a way that it can be measured and evaluated scientifically to inevitably determine how these structures operated. And when Egyptology was being developed in the early 1900s, they didn't have the knowledge that we have today about chemical engineering. It was prior to the modern industrial revolution. So machines that make chemicals didn't even exist at that point. So how could they have imagined the pyramids being chemical manufacturing machines if that didn't even exist? But now we have those type of machines. We have the knowledge to go back and reverse engineer these structures. And again, I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist. I think it's just kind of, you know, negligence or, you know, lack of knowledge at the time that led to some errors being made in the development of Egyptology. Uh,
1: you know, there's a people, a conspiracy theory or what have you is like absolutely umbrella term, you know, grouped into anything alternative from the mainstream. So right. that's unfortunate on its own. But something interesting I had heard you say in, a, in another interview and video um, was this uh, kind of like you know this fluctuation this uh, the systematical pattern that we found ourselves in as society through our what the mainstream considered science like back in ancient Egypt they had this this you know chemistry going on they had the understanding of these elements and then you had later that the, the church's rise you had to get rid of chemistry and science on its own you had to add god to it and that's where alchemy right. came in al 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 god you know right that add to the, the the science and then yet again you have the stripping away of god and you can't associate god with science because science is its own thing so you kind of see this this pattern well um And then like you said, it's like, well, now now we're able to almost deconstruct and reverse engineer the use of these uh, pyramids and the chemical use of these pyramids. Um, What uh, other researchers have done, gotten close to this type of theorem that you've discovered? Is there anybody that you've like looked up to as a researcher, somebody that you've been able to at least nerd out with on this kind of stuff that's been able to help you? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, very good question, and that was one of the first things that I started to do when I was developing this theory was research, has anyone ever suggested something like this in the past? And unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, no, Um, there is no theory out there whatsoever that is even remotely close to mine. Um, uh, but that's also a good thing. Um, that means that my research is one hundred percent my own. It is one hundred percent original and unique. And that was a very positive thing for me. Um, a little bit frustrating that I couldn't find anything out there that was compatible with my ideas. But again, that's kind of an indication that it could be possibly something that is that is right and, you know, completely novel that so that, that being said, when I started to look at Fritz Haber and his research, it was very clear to me that individuals in the past have discovered this information. I am certainly not the only one to have stumbled across this in the past, but instead of these individuals writing a book about it or putting it out on YouTube, you know, he was a Nazi scientist. They, whatever discoveries were were discovered, hush, hush, let's use it for the benefit of our, our, our political system, et cetera, et cetera. They used his discovery, not only to make fertilizers, but they also used it to make chemical weapons and they weaponized an ancient chemical that was discovered from the Egyptian pyramids for modern purposes. So there's certainly people who have discovered this information in the past, but no, I'm, I haven't found anybody that has even close to a, a similar theory. But again, that was a good thing for me. If you look at for Christopher Dunn, for example, probably the most reputable name in the alternative theory about the Egyptian pyramids. Christopher Dunn only focuses on the Great Pyramid, And he says that that thing is making electricity and shooting laser beams out into outer space. Well, that's fine, and (laughs) it's certainly possible, but, okay, if that's doing that, what are all the rest of them doing? And I find it very kind of short-sighted to imply that the Great Pyramid can do all this mysterious, miraculous things, but all the rest of them are just giant piles of stone that don't do anything. Yeah. So for me— my theory is is really comprehensive and it looks at all of them um which again is kind of an indication that it could be more accurate than some of the other ones out there
2: um i want to start with like just your book it's spelled c-h-e-m for chem we know that egypt is k-h-e-m chem command correct uh alchemy uh also uh oh dang it what's the other one fucking blank Comet. yeah there's alchemy right chemical is in the word there's also another word i blanked but also kim Ickle is also from there uh so you can and it's called the land of black i'm wondering do you think this is what ancient black magic was was the the creating of chemicals and this is why they destroyed a lot of the pyramids covered them up uh, destroyed all the pagan belief systems uh, because they are the ones producing the chemicals and they wanted to get rid of this type of technology uh, because it it seems like it's all there that's a a very
0: good question and um so yeah the title for the book is just a play on words you know instead of the land of chem k-h-e-m It's the land of chem as in the land of chemistry, because it's the same thing. And like you mentioned, the etymology of our modern word for chemistry is directly related to the original name for Egypt, which was the land of chem, K-H-E-M. And like you said, the word chem refers to the land of the blackness or the land of the darkness, which the conventional historical explanation will say that that's related to the Nile River soil the very rich, fertile soil, which was black around the Nile River. Well, I prefer to look at that from a chemical interpretation. If you look at the three stages of the alchemical process, you have the negredo, the albedo, and the rubedo. And the first stage of that chemical alchemical process, which is actually a chemical extraction, is the phase of the blackening, the darkening, the negredo, the black stage. So that in and of itself is a chemical operation and extraction process which is directly related to our modern word for chemistry so alchemy means from the blackness so that is literally a phrase that implies chemical extraction because from the blackness you can extract the volatile chemicals so you either burn or calcine your materials you let them putrefy or ferment And then from that, you can extract the product that you're looking for. So the original name, the land of chem for Egypt, to me, implies the land of chemistry. And even according to conventional history, Egypt is the land of chemistry. It's the first place to produce synthetic compounds, Egyptian blue, which is calcium, copper, silicate, a very complicated molecule that they were making for paint, and it was synthetically produced. They were also making medicines and cosmetics and all these things so even conventional history says that Egypt is the land of chemistry, but yeah, it's just a play on words. And some people pick on up on that, and other people are like, "Hey, man, you know the land of chem spelled K H E M? Like, yeah, no shit, dude. It's a fucking play on words."
1: that's uh that's interesting since we got ben here i'm hoping that uh that we can dig a bit deeper into the the processes themselves and the colors uh you know going through the the first stage of putrefaction and the black and uh maybe what uh what was symbolized and what pyramids for the black and uh then go to the albedo the white and then go to the red because there's you know, the casings on the pyramids themselves that symbolize the colors and these processes. And
4: there you go.
1: Um, maybe I we could take it a bit deeper this. into the colors. Awesome.
0: Yeah, so I, I just, so again, um, shameless plug here, right? So I also have a YouTube channel, which is the Land of Chem, C-H-E-M. And I just did a video called The Black, The White, and The Red, The Connections Between Ancient Alchemy and the Geology of the Egyptian Pyramids. And throughout Egypt, you find black basalt white limestone and red granite and all three of these colors are reflected in those three stages of the alchemical process the black the white and the red we also find those colors reflected in the story of atlantis being the three colors of atlantis um so i certainly have discussed that in a recent video on my channel and there are definitely some connections between those three stages the geology and the colors and i don't know if you seen the experiment where we tested the samples of the geology on that machine that produces the electromagnetic energy field. So my first book is initiation into ancient chemistry. It's really just the beginning stuff. And when I was writing the first book, I took a lot of material out of the first book, to just kind of put it away and save it for the next book in the series. So there's a lot more stuff that's coming up in the second book. These structures are far more complex than I had originally anticipated, and I wanted my first book to be the most scientifically valid, viable theory that I could possibly put out. And I worked with a chemical engineer, a guy that has a PhD, master's level chemical engineer, and a retired professor to validate all of my theories before I ever put this thing out for publication. And in working with him, I presented all of my stuff. And he was like, okay, this is the stuff that's really, really solid. This is the stuff that's kind of a little bit more out there. And I saved all the stuff that was a bit more out there for the second book in the series. But now that we've gotten things like that experiment on that electromagnetic field machine and things like the chemical analysis from the Red Pyramid, I am more certain about the things in the second book than I ever have before. And that's why it'll be coming out soon. And that was one thing I made sure to do before I ever put any of this stuff out. I crossed my T's, I dotted my I's, and I wanted to make sure that if I was going to put my neck on the line and stick it out there and actually come up with a theory, and this is my biggest gripe with all of the other channels out there that talk about alternative theories about the Egyptian pyramids, have some balls, come up with a theory, and stake a claim. All of these channels out there just regurgitate the same speculation and nonsense. Oh, these ancient mysteries, how did they cut the stone, and how did they, what is this for, and blah, blah, blah they have no original ideas or theories of their own. So before I put this out there, I wanted to make sure that it was scientifically viable and something that could actually be somewhat proven and demonstrated using empirical science. And that's what we're finding with things like the chemical analysis, et cetera, et cetera. And legitimate engineers and chemical engineers, et cetera, are starting to follow my page. And I have a lot more people that are legitimate scientists that are interested in this material, which is kind of an
2: indication that which is crazy to seem that it might be right. Yeah I mean <clears throat> it makes a whole lot of sense uh, one of the things that they talk about in like the pyramid power stuff is uh, how the those little portholes at the top of the pyramid point to different constellations or that all the 16 pyramids on, on the Giza plateau are lined up to Osiris the stars in Osiris Uh, what kind of operation do you need? Do you need to be using that into creating chemicals? Why would they have aligned to those positions or are people just trying to grasp at straws?
0: Yeah, so all of these structures do have very, very sophisticated alignments and correspondences with different constellations and all of that stuff. And if you look at the practice of alchemy, the intention of that was to incorporate the natural forces of the universe, the power of the sun, the power of the moon, the power of the earth, the power of the constellations into your chemistry, right? So you're collecting dew at a certain time because it's collected the properties of the moon and this, that, and the other. Well, ancient alchemy was not like chemistry today, where it is separated from God, right? This was done at a time where all of these things were integrated. There was no separating the forces of the universe from the chemistry of the people. So they designed these structures. It's a convergence of forces, right? So these things are placed on very, very specific places on the earth because you're capitalizing on the electromagnetic energy flowing into the structure from that specific point on the earth. So they've geolocated the pyramids and put them in very specific places. They're also aligning them directly with the constellations, right? So you're getting all of this universal energy transmitted into the pyramid itself, which is going to facilitate. And this is kind of what I get into in the second book is explaining. So all, all the things I just said are all speculative, Right. There are no scientific terms in there whatsoever. But what I've done in the second book is explain exactly how all that stuff works. So the earth has a very powerful electromagnetic energy field. And if you place certain types of stone on top of that electromagnetic energy field, that stone is going to interact with that field in different ways. And that's what I showed in that experiment with the pyramid geology. So all of this stuff was incorporated into facilitating that chemical reaction process. Also in the first book, I haven't discussed any of the temples or any of that other stuff. So we have the pyramids, but there's a whole system, a whole complex of different types of structures around these things. So there's, I'm I'm intentionally being kind of vague at what I'm (laughs) indicating here. But so what I've discussed in the first book is the function of the interior chambers of the pyramids, Mm -hmm. Much larger expanse. Um, The, so...
1: I kind of am trying to piece together and put together all of the pyramids scattered across the earth and their potential functions on a global scale. And it's interesting to, you know, the the land of black, right? Or the black land, land of black being the first step of alchemy. Um, You know, I'm wondering if if South America or Mesoamerica would be more considered a a red land, maybe the Rubedo process. And there happen to be thousands of pyramids there as well with the same type of land of gold, man. The land of gold. So what are these different stages on Earth if if, if you have this part of your theorem uh, that maybe are the constituents that make up the color of the process on the philosopher's stone of Earth, the planet, you know, that that we're on? Because I look at it right. as like we live in an alchemical galaxy. It's like everything is the micro and the macro, so on and so forth. And so, like, there's got to be these different places on Earth that are – playing major roles in the major ultimate function of the ultimate vibration i guess
0: yeah so um, i i 100% believe that all of the ancient structures across the planet are connected south america asia india japan there's all sorts of pyramids and structures out in you know china and japan all across europe as well and in the final chapter of the book i talk about new range and the passage chamber structures of ireland and how those structures were also related to the production of chemicals so um i'll probably eventually get there and maybe a third or yes. fourth book in the series god only knows um, please South write America. a
1: book dedicated to that connection because we love that around here we've talked about that on many episodes just like the oh, ultimate yeah. irish egyptian connection man it's super fascinating
0: oh uh, dude well that's right up my alley and- it was one of the greatest discoveries that I kind of stumbled across was the connection between Egypt and Ireland. And the final chapter of the book is, is in Ireland. And so 2017 was my first trip to Egypt. 2018 comes around and I realized I had to go to Ireland to research those structures to write the final chapter of the book. And there's, there's definitely a connection. I have some videos on my, my YouTube channel about this exact topic. And for example, South America So think about El Dorado and the lost city of gold and all the gold that they were producing over there. So the production of gold, specifically incredibly pure gold, which they had 99.99% gold, you cannot get that type of purity of gold without a chemical extraction process. So for them to be able to do that, they had to have chemicals. So I have some theories about some of the structures in South America, about how they were operating but I do believe that was a massive gold producing civilization and metallurgy was one of the primary applications for these chemicals were for the production of, well, for the mining extraction and separation of these different metals. And glass. Do you think the production of glass was a big part of this? Uh, oh, hundred percent.
1: Yeah. seems to be a big yeah, part just, of dark uh, history.
0: Oh, I love ancient glass making. And it's, it's one of those things that, Making glass is chemistry. You can't, you can't make glass unless you have all the right chemicals to make the glass and melt it. And if you put different types of metals into your glass, you can get all these spectacular colors. And um, So there's lots of chemistry involved in glass making, and glass making is one of the most ancient industries on the planet. And I actually have some really awesome—so when I go to Egypt, my favorite stuff in the museum is like the little tiny pieces and the glass— I don't give a fuck about the mummies or any of the other stuff in there. I just like the real small stuff. I actually really despise the fact that they have these mummies in a museum. It is an absolute travesty that this is how we get our history, is by desecrating the graves of these ancient civilizations. If you find it, leave it where you fucking found it. Don't pull it out of the hole. You can study it and look at it, but then close the damn thing back up and leave it where it is. I I hate going into the mummy section. It really creeps me out. Um, Again, that's I have a lot of disagreements about how Egyptology was developed and they should take a little bit more care in investigating, especially the burials. We're on uh, the, like we're r- riding the backs of, um,
1: God. the tomb robbers, dude. Like we, all, all our modern society is kind of riding on the backs of oil barons and tomb robbers, grave diggers from that got rich off of, you
0: know, hijacking it's, ancient mysteries It's mysticism. really sad. Yeah. yeah. And when you, when is. you look inside and inside the pyramids, there's graffiti, From the 1800s, from guys like Balzoni, who are now reputable in Egyptology as being one of the developers of the science of Egyptology. Well, this fucking asshole took a spray, you know, whatever kind of paint and wrote his name all over the inside of a pyramid. Like, so that incredible type of disrespect and disregard for the ancient civilization is an absolute travesty to me. And again, these guys, well, so they didn't know what they were looking at. They weren't engineers. They weren't chemists. They weren't scientists. They were very, very rich individuals that were looking to make a name for themselves in this new industry of Egyptology. So they had a bunch of money. They had a bunch of time. They went over there. They did some research, and they found a bunch of interesting stuff, but it's not necessarily the genuine interpretation of what these
3: were.
2: Yeah. I thought, ben, ben, did you have a question?
4: Um, I think that they think that, I think that they uh, believe that those mummies were coming back. That that was going to be a person again at some point in time. Um, and that's why they preserved them that way. Uh, there's actually uh, a different science out there that shows uh, when conditions get right, certain things can regenerate from just from their DNA and completely regenerate and it just is a condition type thing so I think they thought they were coming back (laughs) and I think that the the it's very interesting because all the pyramid holes that point at uh certain stars it's only at a certain time that that star would do it so if you're uh and when you're an alchemist, that's a really important thing. The sky is a clock, and that tells you the the timing and the energies that are going to be coming out of the out of the uh, etheric. And as he explained very well, they've already picked their ley line spot where they're matching the earth energies. And uh, so, very well, could be that that was basically a timer. And when the time was right, that lo- that star would line up with that hole. It's time to begin there this reaction.
0: Your spark eye, Ben.
1: That's a that's a lot of celestial play at, on a major major level to be able to even uh, map out any sort of stars by any means, by any, so by any, many, you know, years of observation is such an extreme level. I mean, it's the, 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 society had to have been going on itself for millennia. Like it's just, or, or no, I'm not even going to say it, but please continue, Jeff. I was going to go somewhere. Yeah. Well, no, you're, you're go. right
0: on the, right on the money. And that's, that's exactly the point of all this stuff is that these structures have such a rich amount of cumulative knowledge. How long does it take to gather all of the knowledge about the operation of the solar system in the universe to be able to build it into these structures? So the fact that they have this knowledge is a direct indication of the antiquity of that civilization because it takes tens of thousands of years to be able to, to study the solar cycles to be able to understand them enough to then build them into a massive structure. So again, the implication of conventional history that these things were built by slaves is absolute nonsense. It's like saying that the most sophisticated skyscrapers that we have today are built by slave labor. No, you get the most skilled architects, construction workers, et cetera, et cetera, that you possibly have on the planet design and execute these structures and that's exactly how it was done in the ancient world to be a a stonemason in the ancient world was the most important thing that you could possibly do because it was literally building the civilization
2: yeah man i was uh i was hoping you'd get a little bit more into new grange and the tuata oh yeah yeah yeah
0: one of my
2: one of my favorite
0: um, so I have been fascinated cause I'm, I'm half Irish, half Polish. My mom was born in Poland. My dad's family was born in Ireland. So I'm literally a first generation American, which is very unusual. So I go back to Ireland and I'm looking around I'm like, man, it's my fucking cousin and my brother and everybody, everybody looks exactly like me when I was over there. Um, <laughs> but I've been fascinated by these structures and I never felt like there was a satisfactory explanation for the function thereof. Of course, everybody says there's burials, right? Um, well, Nothing of these structures indicates that it was a burial to me. Um, Newgrange, for example, has three separate little side chambers. If this burial for one person, you would have just one elaborate burial type chamber. You don't need the three ancillary chambers. Not to mention the fact that there's a curbstone out in front of Newgrange that has all these symbols on it. And no one in conventional history has ever explained the symbols of the Newgrange curve stone. Well, after I began to evaluate the configuration of the structure, I realized that the stone out in front of Newgrange and the symbols on it are literally a formula for the chemical reaction that was occurring inside that structure. It's, it's like an instruction manual, literally sitting right out in front of the structure that tells you exactly how this thing works. And that was one of the greatest revelations that I came up with when I was developing and writing the book was, was figuring out how I thought those things operated. And the Danann are this mythological race of quote-unquote gods that arrived to Ireland with the knowledge of construction, science, astronomy, astrology, and of course they had magic. Well, we know hmm. that the reason these ancient civilizations believed this to be magic is because it's from the perspective of the onlooker someone who has no idea that what this guy is doing is a chemical reaction. So I could take one clear liquid here and one clear liquid here and pour it, and then it turns into a red liquid. Oh, that's magic, he's a sorcerer, you know, like that type of stuff. Or if I take some metal filings and I set them on fire, you get this spectacular fire, all these sparks and stuff in my hand, And oh, he's a wizard, he's a sorcerer. Well, no, it's just a simple chemical reaction of oxidation of metal and combustion of metal. So, again, that's where you get all these stories from the ancient world of the practitioners of magic. Well, no, it was just a, a civilization that was sophisticated enough and understood chemistry. Even when you look at the stories of Jesus from the Bible and all this stuff and turning wine into water and all this kind of stuff, well, it's it's chemistry. It's all chemistry. Mm-hmm.
4: Um, <laughs> well, when you put it that way, that puts the story, because uh, eventually the people of Ireland turn against the Tuatha Dé Danann And they have a war and they drive them out. It really then would parallel really heavily with the world that we are experiencing today, where so many of us want to take the technology and the medicine that they have developed and tell them, "Get, get bent with that. So that's just a very interesting parallel that would be.
0: Well, so for some reason, Ireland in the ancient world was a very sought after location. And there were all of these ancient tribes and ancient civilizations that were attempting to settle in Ireland, and the Tuatha, Tuatha de Danan came and settled. And then you had all of these other barbarous groups that were coming and attempting to settle that island. So there was huge conflict. There were all of these wars, and like you said, they were eventually either into extinction or driven off the island. And um, yeah, it's just one of the. So the the mythological story of Ireland is absolutely fascinating, and. There's a great quote by Rudyard Kipling that says, if history was told in the form of stories, then it would never be forgotten. And that is one of the reasons that I wrote my book as a quote, unquote, fictional story. I didn't want it to be just some dry, boring ass research paper that nobody was gonna read. I wanted it to be a compelling story that actually told you know, what I believe to be the, the actual story of these structures. And that's what we see in the mythology across the planet is literal stories these ancient civilizations that tell it how it was and now we've just reinterpreted it as being quote unquote mythology where there's actually probably some serious grains of truth in all that um
2: so with that i have speaking of stories i have a story from uh the exodus from egypt in the desert of aminta uh by gerald massey uh, it's a couple pages here that I want to read because it's about the Tuatha de Danana and it connects it to Egypt. And it says, uh, the starting point of the Mangean, I'm going to mess up a lot of words, so bear with me. Uh, the starting point of the Mangean migration was from Savaiki and the Shades. The natives of the Pinrins speak of going down to Savaiki in death, and they say their first ancestors came up as heaven-bursters from the same country. All such origins are mythical, not historical or geographical. Although the myth- mythical land gets localized on the surface of the earth as it is in the heptonymous of the Hervey Isles, saveki was known as the home of the ancestors, but the only ancestors first known were the ancestral spirits. And it was these as mains that sought deliverance from the underworld. And one of the traditions of the Egyptians were reputed to come from the land of Puanta, the Ta Niter or country of the gods, the land of glory or the golden Land. When it is said that to the sun God adoration to thee who areest out of the golden, it means out of puanta, the Netherland of dawn. This land of the gods, as a mythical locality, was in the underworld, not on the surface of the earth. It is not the Puanta that was geographical in the south. The people from Puanta, the land of the gods, are those who had a solar origin. They issue from the land of glory with the sun. The gods and the glorified came up from this divine land, and when they emerged from Puanta in the orient, One title of the first chapter in the ritual is the chapter of introducing the mummy into the Tuat on the day of burial. This applies to the mummy entered on, uh, yeah, entered on earth and also to the Osiris remains in Amenta who was figured in the mummy form. The Tuat is a place of entrance to the egress from the underworld and in the pyramid text. Those who are in the Tuat are called the Tuata. Now, as the Tuat was in Tanin, the land beneath the waters of the Nen, they are the Tuata Tanin, in whom we propose the identity of the Irish mythical heroes or the divine ancestors called the Tuatha de Danann. In the oldest account of the Tuatha, it is said they came from heaven. Therefore, their origin was not human. In issuing from the Tuatha Vamenta, they came from the lower paradise of the two from which they brought the wisdom and the symbols of the Egyptians as their sacred treasures, including the four precious things belonging to the Tuatha De Danan. The Tuatha are described as the gods and not the gods, a title that exactly corresponds to the Egyptian two classes of spirits called the gods and glorified. According to geraldus in the topographic uh, hibernia it was a guess of the learned that the tuatha were the number of the exiles driven out of heaven and if they were of those who came from the land of promise and issued from the tuat they would come from the subterranean Ar- araru or earthly paradise the hills and mounds of urin and the places of entrance to and to and exit from the invisible world of the elfin land which answers to the hidden earth of the mains in Amenta. When uh, you, I don't know that word, by tradition, the Tuatha de Danann are said to have retired into the hills and mounds after they were utterly defeated in battle. So to me, that sounds like uh, like the mounds in America, possibly, or other types of Irish mounds uh, found in Ireland. Uh, They retreated. They retired into the hills and mounds after they were utterly defeated. In other legends, Dagda and his sons were once the rulers over the Netherland, and they are said to lie buried there with the Sid or Fairy Mound of the Bruh Br- as covering for their resting place. The Brua was originally the place of burial. He who sleeps at filet is he who sleeps in the Bruh or berg, or bury, uh, the name written in hieroglyphics is peruk, bruh, and there the mummy slept in the burr of Aminta or with the tuat in the tuat of the netherworld. The divine mother of the tuatha is known by her name of Danan. The tuatha are the tribe of, or people of the goddess Danan, who is also the deus of the tribe or people of the goddess uh, or of Tanen, who is also the deus of death. Now there is an Egyptian goddess, Tanan, who is a form of Hathor, the amorous queen in the earth of Tanan, the land of the nocturnal sun and the domain of the dead. The god Tanan is lord of that land and the goddess is identified with Hathor by her headdress. The name of Tanan may also be written tan. This agrees with her... With the naming of the Welsh and Irish goddess Daniel or Danan, her name takes from the Don in Welsh, and the deities who descend from her, like Gwyndian and Arian, or Hod, are called the Children of Don. The Tuatha de Danan are also termed the Fear Dia, or Men of the Goddess. Hence, we propose to identify the goddess Tanan with Danan and Daniel. The great mother of the Tuatha de Danan, who were the people of the goddess as the souls of the dead and the divine Netarkar, i.e., the Tanan, and who issued from the Tuat with the sun or solar god as the moon, or er, Tuat with the sun or solar god as the men of the goddess who was the Tanan in Egypt, Danan in Ireland, and Don in Britain. The men of the goddess, as we suggest, were the Tuatha of the pyramid text who as divine ancestors became the Irish Tuatha de Danann. The same word is represented by Irish Tuatha for the tribe, Breton Tud, Gothic Theuda, Saxon Theod for a people, the Queen Tuatha for a community. It is also extant to the name of the Teutons. Uh, One of the chief attributes of the Tuatha de Danann is the power that they have assuming any form at will. And this is the supreme trait of those who come forth when the Tuat is opened. Uh, So I'll stop a little bit right there. But uh, it's very interesting. There's another line down here It says, uh, thus interpreted the Tuatha or tribes who brought the ancient wisdom out of Lower Egypt or the Tuat may have been genuine Egyptians after all, as much derided traditions of the celte and the Kimri yet allege and strenuously maintain. So we know who the Celte are. So it seems like maybe the, the tribe of Dan or the Tuatha de uh at one point came from somewhere else and came down to Egypt and had this knowledge with them. And maybe that's why they were going back uh, to Ireland.
0: Well, so you just you just said it right there. And there are a number of researchers who have implied that the Tuatha de Danon are one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Dan. Correct. And like you said, the Tuatha de Danon being ex, ex, exiled from heaven, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of goes along with the mythology of the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of symbolic connections between some of the geometry that we find in these things and some Hebrew text and Hebrew symbols. So I'm very, very interested in that story. And it's one of those proverbial chicken and the egg thing, right? Which came first, Mm. the Egyptians or the Irish? And some people have implied that Osiris was actually an uh, Irish god originally, and that that god was brought into Egypt. So again, which one of these things came first? So in the book, I kind of give, and it's it's part of explaining the entire story, is the timeline of the construction of these monuments. And I'm one of those that very much believes in the ancient civilization that inhabited North America during the last ice age. And you see all of this mythology across the planet in Europe, Africa, South America, and Asia of the arrival of the creator gods. And the only place that we do not have this mythology is in North America. So, if the gods are arriving everywhere across the planet except from North America, where do they come from? Well, they came from North America. That civilization was destroyed in a huge cataclysm at the end of the last ice age, the proverbial great flood that destroyed the entire world. There was massive flooding, et cetera, et cetera. The survivors of this ancient civilization and the survivors of this cataclysm fled across the world, bringing their knowledge of construction astrology geoma- ge- geometry mathematics and chemistry magic to all these places across the world and they start building structures like the passage chamber structures of ireland eventually moving into the pyramids of egypt to help re-establish the civilization and these are basic infrastructure projects that would enable them to re-establish themselves in these new areas by producing chemicals, fertilizers, et cetera, et cetera, that are gonna allow the civilization to continue to grow. So that's kind of how I propose the story and the timeline in the book. But there's so much mystery in the ancient world, it's, it's really hard to nail down. I just, it was part of the process of me writing the story was coming up with a, the timeline that I thought was applicable to these structures. And they're very interesting time period in the Sahara between 8500 and around 5300 BC, where there was actually plentiful rainfall in the Sahara. And that's the time period that I believe the Egyptian pyramids were actually constructed and in operation during this time period. And this leads directly to your your previous question about kind of the the undulation and the rise and fall of technology. Well, it's also due to the series of kind of cataclysms on the planet. And you have a, a civilization that reaches its peak, and then there's a the cataclysm and everything is destroyed, but some of that ancient knowledge is preserved and it allows us to go back up again. And then something happens, a great war or cataclysm or flood or you know, sickness or whatever, and then it goes back down. Mm. But there's a lineage of this ancient knowledge that is perpetual throughout all of these cycles. So you see it in the large scale in the Egyptian pyramids. That civilization declines and it goes back underground, the Egyptian pyramid or the the dynastic period where chemistry was being practiced by a group of sacred initiates. Then this is also carried underground into the Roman Greek period, into Mm -hmm. the medieval alchemy of that period, where it was still very much practical chemistry, but it was hidden Mm -hmm. underneath this narrative of spiritual alchemy and transformation- specifically cryptic. To protect the practitioners. Yeah, well, because again, It it all has to do with the establishment of the Holy Roman Empire and the Catholic Church, where the practice of all of these ancient sciences was no longer allowed. If you were doing that, you were going to be burned at the stake. So they had to hide it under the veil of spiritual alchemy.
1: One of my favorite mysterious rabbit holes of the ancient uh, history that's that's pretty esoteric because not a lot of people talk about ancient Russia because not a lot is known about ancient Russia because Russia really good at making sure their history is locked up tight and the whole like Tartaria scandal that came across the internet was because Putin specifically leaked documents out of their historic vault back in like that you know the mid 2000s with maps of tartaria and then then slowly that leaked on the internet and that just is one example of how to show you that these specific areas of of history are are going to be locked up almost seemingly forever unless you can get your hands into these vaults but um you know we have
0: unfortunate how you look at the history of the planet and our history is really where you live, right? The truth of history depends on who's telling it and and where you live. So our truth here in the United States is not necessarily what the Russians would believe to be as truth or the Chinese or, you know, however you want to look at it. The same thing with religion across the planet, right? So there's only one creator or deity, but depending on where you
4: I think he's froze.
1: Oh, I didn't know if Mm -hmm. I was frozen or. uh, (laughs) Yeah, he froze. I was
2: like. uh, uh Uh-oh, we're just getting juicy. Yeah, man. Jeff, you're frozen.
1: Dude, can't wait to do an ancient Irish month, though. We got to do that. Soon, as sooner rather than later. Uh,
4: well, this also puts a fascinating spin on the fact that I, uh, the Catholic Church has been stealing Irish babies for decades and decades. They just take Irish babies like they're nothing. And you look, uh, in mainstream uh, stories, they are constantly going on about blonde-haired, blue-eyed people. But in, like, uh heathen cosmology, it's red haired, green, yeah. it's red haired green eyed people. Green eyes and yeah uh, yeah, yeah.
1: I think and I think so- blue eyes is kind of a throw off. I think blue eyes are special and they, they are the thing, but I think the green eyes, you're right. And guess what? Fucking cats, yet again. <laughs> cats with the green eyes. They're known to have green eyes, baby. Catrophy,
4: catastrophe. Uh, very interesting.
1: Yeah, man. What's your what's your take on the uh, the chemical composition makeup of the pyramids, Ben? Well,
4: it's it's very interesting if they're using a <clears throat> a three step series. Um, mm. Also, very interesting that the the they corresponded the the color of the pyramids with. Then one would assume the specific step that they're looking at was done in that pyramid. And then the first uh, the one pyramid he described as he, he was talking about it as being a methane production chamber but one of the things that uh, the calcination requires is uh you to put fire you're putting all your material in fire you're you're burning the hell out of it mm-hmm. and uh the the description he made of it was a rocket stove that that's exactly Dude. the way a rocket stove is built
1: bro let me just let me just pop in here real quick That is fucking fascinating because I was going to ask you, I was like, well, you know, I was like, where are they setting the fires? Are they setting it underneath in these tunnels and systems that are underneath? And that would be a rocket stove. If they were lighting the tunnels underneath, everything on the inside would be getting cooked and used as their still, as a fucking
4: massive still. Yeah. And then the air would just scream inside the one stove door and then it fly right out the top it's just a giant rocket stove, from the way it sounded oh
2: Robin's face is melting
1: <laughs> oh, because man we were just like so ben right after we had our san Francisco situation right we went to the hotel and we started talking with um um oh dan's not gonna chime in what's this uh who do we talk to in the hotel at san francisco cliff dunning cliff dunning thank you uh which that episode will be out by the time this one's out and you know i for the for the past month at least been really trying to rack my brain on what's going on in the tunnel waste underneath, Um, you know, and in South America, they for sure were flooding them, you know, Uh, they were burning the cinnabar, the cinnabar tunnels. And they were, I mean, what leaching the mercury from that, and then they were flooding these tunnels. So that then the waters underneath were flowing with the mercurial water. Um, But I'm not sure if that was happening in egypt i think what if these different places were doing the different processes and they had a huge trading route set up like a global trading route where it'd be like okay you guys make all the mercury you know get this and then we'll make it and they were trading as opposed to making everything in one place and so that would make these different special sacred sites trading hubs and ports to to make the ultimate I don't know, like concoction or what? Like, also, how were they? How do you guys really think they were traveling back in the day? You think they were using chemicals, hot air balloons, zeppelins, uh, Vimanas, or uh, what's your guys' thoughts on that? Also, hello, Jeff. Hello,
2: Jeff. Jeff is back.
0: back. Hey, Roman, you were on a roll there talking about the mercury and the uh, extraction of mercury from cinnabar, et cetera, et cetera
1: yeah man we we've been lucky enough to talk to some awesome people who do tours in egypt and south america and stuff and you know oh yeah when you get to doing it for a few years you know you start to get led in these secret places you start figuring more stuff out and we've been really curious about the 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 tunnels underneath because there's no doors in the in the real pyramids or a lot of the pyramids don't have doors and the easiest way to access them is from underneath um, And then we found out that in South America, a lot of these pyramids had mercury pools or mercury rivers underneath it, also in China. And yep. we're like, okay, why? Why? Why and how? But then Cliff Dunning oh. was able to tell us that they were literal hallways of Cinnabar. So they were building the pyramids on top of cinnabar mines and then they would, they found char marks as if they were burning the hallways and then just leaching the liquid mercury out. And so, but I didn't know if they, he only said that for Mesoamerican pyramids, he didn't say that about Egyptian pyramids. So what's your take on all of that?
0: Yeah. So the pyramid of Teotihuacan, for example, is reputed to have a river of mercury running underneath the structure. And there's a bunch of ancient pyramids that have this kind of mercurial setup uh, well, mercury is very, very effective at extracting and amalgamating gold. Mm-hmm. So anytime you see yeah. mercury, you're immediately looking at a structure that was related to the production of gold or extracting gold, rather. And that's why I specifically mentioned in South America, El Dorado and the City of Gold. That's That was the, the major preoccupation of the civilization in South America was extracting and refining gold.
2: There's it, a, according you, to Michael okay, Tellinger, yeah. there was tons of, uh, like circle structures in, uh, Africa, all over were, South Africa. Yeah. That they were also using yeah. as gold mines, uh, to extract gold from there. So were they, were they like taking the gold into the pyramid and, and condensing it into something else? Or what, what do you think was happening there?
0: So the pyramids themselves would have been just for the production of the chemical itself. And then you would have had refineries or factories or, you know, other sort of structures or buildings where they would have done the refinement and this, that, and the other. You also have, you know, your mining operations where they would utilize these chemicals for mining and extraction purposes. Mm, There you go. So the the pyramids are just one tiny part of Mm -hmm. a huge global network of structures that Again, the more you start to dig into this stuff, the bigger the picture gets, and it, the more overwhelming it becomes. And it's just, <laughs> all right, so this one thing leads to another thing, and this one thing leads to another thing. And then all of a sudden, you're at the bottom of the rabbit hole, and like, you know, how do I get back out of here, back to where I There's was? There's no going it. back out. Maybe there is no going back, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man,
1: you know, I was I was thinking that too. It's like you think about our society, and if we were to get hit by a deluge, which, hey, if we're at a peak by any means, you know, societally, which a lot of people think that we're we're doing such a great bustling society, well, don't get your hopes up about being too fucking bustling, because the cylindrical system of time itself shows us that a bustling community thus will fall to the natural occurrences of some sort of cataclysms, <laughs> some sort of catastrophe, and. And, um, but if you look at what our our society has been able to build, right, what might be the only things left? Power plants, things that were made for production. You know, people's homes will be wiped out completely. Um, you know, businesses, right, like normal things, the things that will be left, capital buildings, okay, uh, maybe some really fucking nice cathedrals um, and the pyramids. And so it's like all the other remnants of the society, the normal daily lives of these ancient Egyptian people and everything else, the supermarkets and stuff, that's all gone. And so that's why I think it is, it kind of concludes to your point, Jeff, that these are major workings. They were facilities. They were the places where you go, they were kept clean, like a fucking lab. They had their purpose and it was a huge, major function. And, you know, like, not just a tomb to worship, but then again, also talking on the, the pyramid power shit that the, the awesome Russian scientists found back in like the seventies, um, doing those awesome, crazy experience experiments with like sharpening razor blades and stuff, which I've never attested to, but it's really cool to think about. But the preservation, uh, of it, like that is proven and some alternatives, I guess pseudoscience, but that it would preserve things and kind of what Ben was talking about earlier, you know, these bodies might be able to preserve long enough for them to get bustled back with life.
0: Well, so one of the questions that comes up a lot is why did they build them so big and why did they make them with all of that stone? Well, the intention was for these things to last forever, Right, They were intended to be able to survive cataclysms because it was built by a civilization that had been through a cataclysm, and everything that they had was completely wiped out. So when they reestablished themselves, hey, we got to build things that are going to last forever. And there's a number of reasons why they built them in a pyramid shape and why they had all the stones. It was longevity. It was to encapsulate the pressure inside of the systems. It was to prevent environmental contamination. It was to ensure the stability of the internal chamber systems while the thing is operating so the whole thing didn't shake apart. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why they made them as big as they did, but that was one of the main reasons was to ensure that it would last forever. And again, that people in the future would be able to go back and look at them and study them and retrieve the information. They are literally meant to be read and studied. And it's it's unfortunate that you know the first thing that people came up with, oh, these are just burial tombs. There's... Stick a body in there and call it a day. Hmm.
2: Yeah, uh, I've seen in one of your videos, you're talking about the the stones and how they are um, kind of all odd-shaped, but they all fit together seamless, uh, seamless, seamlessly. Uh, what do you think that the, the reason why they would make them weird shapes to fit together? What was the practicality of that?
0: So that's, that's kind of a twofold thing, right? So anytime you have very talented artisans, these artisans are going to want to display the magnificence of their work. Mm-hmm. right? So that was one reason they did it was because they could, because they were that skilled that they could say, Hey, look at this, look at what we fucking did. And then people would come back thousands of years, man, look at all these interacting interlocking stones. But it was also for just stability purposes. If you have stones that are interlocking irregular shapes, it's going to be a lot more difficult to shake them apart and get them loose. So all of it is for infrastructure and stability. Mm -hmm. And and people would imply that the Egyptian pyramids themselves are built with precision, you know, precision stones. That is not the case whatsoever. The internal stones, the actual body of the pyramid, they're all irregular shaped stones. None of them are precision whatsoever. And they're all stuck together with mortar. So the entire internal part of the pyramid is very much not precision whatsoever. The only precision part is the outside. It's like, it's kind of just like a puzzle. You know, you put all these puzzle
1: pieces together and it makes us really strong picture and it holds itself together, even though it's just like a, I mean, that's a two dimensional kind of reference, but you know, it it still makes an interlocking, you know, if you were to stack a bunch of fucking puzzles together that are all different on top of that, you might find yourself with a complete, you know,
0: board at some point. Well, uh, and so it well, makes here's something that's going to completely blow your mind is I believe that every single stone that was placed in these constructions was numbered And designed in order. (laughs) So every single stone of the millions and millions and millions of stones, every single one of those had a number. And number one goes here. Number two goes here. Number three. All through the millions and millions, every single one was designed, specifically shaped by an architect who planned all of – and this is something that nobody ever talks about in the construction of the Egyptian pyramids. What about all the pre-planning? So everybody talks about just getting the stones into the pyramid itself. Okay, yeah, that's a feat. But what about the terrain engineering that you have to do prior to the plateau itself? You have to completely level this entire plateau and make sure that the foundation of the structure is sturdy enough to be able to support three massive pyramids. So before you ever even build anything, you have to completely manufacture the plateau itself. We you got to find the, the, find the mines structures. and get the tunnels. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So so the first time I went to Egypt, I'm sitting on the Giza Plateau, and I'm looking at the pyramids sticking out of the top, and I'm like, this is just sitting on top of a skyscraper that goes all the way down into the ground. And the only thing that you can see sticking out on the top is the pyramid. So like a you mushroom you have to think about that. There is an underground network of tunnels and all sorts of other stuff. God only knows what's underground there beneath the Giza Plateau. So when people talk about the construction of the pyramid, dude, that's only one fucking small part. And clearly that was easy for them to do because they're still here and they built hundreds of them. So again, you have to, you got to get your whatever kind of equipment to level the entire, the Giza Plateau is huge. So they had to go through, remove all this stone, you know, take all this stone out, level it, lower it, all this kind of stuff just to be able to build one of them. So it is an unbelievably massive undertaking of industry, construction, engineering, architecture. And you have to think about doing it from today's perspective, too. All the people that would have to be involved in developing the plan, just to do the plan, before you ever move a fucking stone, you got to have a plan. So where's
1: the plan? Dude, let's dig into that a little bit. What what is your take on on maybe some of the equipment? Like, uh, you know, we're obviously talking about a civil a civilization that had a massive. I'm gonna say the word galactic understanding. You know, massive amount of celestial information, and I do mean celestial. I mean, to they're working with the fucking stars in the sky, and it was you know as part as much as part of their. Uh, science as, as anything else. I mean, even to in today's standards, astronomy is a high science that you have to go to school for and you have to do years of fucking training to even, you know, be able to comprehend the basics of it. And so um, what 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 is your, I mean, hey, we're speculating here, baby. We're throwing, we are throwing shit into the shade of, of history. Like this is this is some deep stuff and I love it. But yeah, what's your uh, potential speculations on some of the equipment and uh, how they were doing these pre procedures
0: so there's this entire group of individuals that call themselves the lost ancient high technology folks and i won't call anybody out by name but you know who they are that would propose that there's all of this equipment all of this lost ancient high technology saws and machine powered electricity powered diamond saws and all this other kind of stuff well you don't need any of that stuff to actually cut and work with stone All you need is skill, patience, and hard work, and you can cut stone, right? This was done all across the ancient world. And another argument is, oh, the copper chisels, they couldn't carve the stuff with copper chisels. Well, the dynastic Egyptians had arsenical copper, which is completely different than regular copper, and it's much, much harder of a metal. So they had different amalgams and stuff and different types of metals that would allow them to cut these stones. I also believe they had quote unquote machinery, like something called the, oh, and it's going to skip my mind. It's a saw from ancient Greece. And it's, of course, the name of it is completely skipping my mind. Um, But it's a water powered saw blade that essentially it's a water wheel connected to a saw blade that moves back and forth that cuts through the stone. And it's a wooden apparatus. And they would have had stuff like that set up at the quarry sites where water is coming in, the water is powered to the water wheel, the stone is cut and, you know, so it's not necessarily being done manually. They were definitely using machines and equipment, but that doesn't mean whatsoever that it was electricity powered or that it was diamond circular saws and all this kind of, no, easy. It was wooden apparatuses. It was water powered. And a lot of people also forget, so I recently did a video building the Great Pyramid with water. So these stones were floated to the sites, but not floated as in acoustic levitation. They were floated on wood. Everyone forgets about the buoyancy properties of wood. And wood is incredibly buoyant. And you can float massive stones on wood. And so they eat on top of wood barges or with the wood on top as a buoyancy float, and I have an awesome video, and there's a couple of researchers that have put together exceptional animations showing this process of how the stones, it's all about fluid dynamics. Mm-hmm. This was a civilization that was predicated upon the understanding of how water worked. Water was essential for this ancient civilization, built by the Nile River. Everything in that civilization operated according to the fluctuation of that water. They understood how to use water to work. And if you build, waterways and canals and stuff, you can literally float these things right into place, float them right up the side of the structure, drop it into place, boom, done. That being said, I also think they had stuff like pulleys and A-frames and all of these things. So pulleys utilize physics and it is the utilization of physics that allows this miraculous movement of huge stones. Well, if you have hundreds and hundreds of pulleys, one person, can literally lift a stone that weighs tons and tons if you have some pulleys and that's all you need and that, that's what people look at like this coral castle and um i forget Edward Lee scandalin that you mm-hmm. say the, the levitation of the stones at coral castle no he was using a pulley system he had a chain a block and tackle an a-frame and a pulley and he was literally lifting those stones by himself using physics
1: Leland though using- Leland wrote a fantastic fucking book on uh magnetism yes. and his his like he was like a physicist uh, that was so pseudo at, people considered him so pseudo at the time but dude he was into some shit
0: man and he, was he irish what, what was his descent the Hierapolis the saw hmm. that's the name oh. of it i knew i was going to remember Hierapolis saw google it and you should see an image of it I'm going to pull it up. Uh, but Lee Scanlon, Scanlon was a very, very interesting guy, and he was he was certainly into the esoteric. If you look at mm-hmm. you know the the designs of Coral Castle and the geometry and mathematics of all that kind of stuff, um, you know he was certainly in the know about the ancient civilizations.
2: He said that he knew uh, the secrets of how the Egyptian pyramids were built, and that's how he was able to do it.
0: Yeah, the block 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 and tackle in a pulley. And they've mm-hmm. they've looked at it, and there's actually videos of him. Somebody caught a video looking over the thing, and he's been there doing this with the little A-frame, lifting up a huge stone. And you can do it with a pulley. Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. That I think I think magnetism and uh, or magnets, sorry, magnetite and lodestone play a big part in human history too. That's that's pretty hidden. And I've been trying to find more um more ties into it i can find it all the way back to um like I mean magnet magnets were being used by the ancient Chinese to create the first like navigating uh compasses for their for their system. That's like the first noted use of magnetite itself. But I think obviously it was it was known before that because where you find magnetite, oftentimes you find gold mines, right? And oh, yeah. the so ancient the things I'm really interested in, we brought it up earlier, ancient glass, the esoteric history of glass. Uh, magnets and mining, because I think in those kind of areas we can find a lot of these uh, these ancient, you know, ways of how the fuck they were functioning. And so I'm like thinking, I'm like cause I've had the water thought before. I haven't looked, I'm going to start, uh, really digging way deeper into your work, Jeff. I, uh, there, there was a few videos I watched that already just blew my mind. So I'm, I'm, I'm deep in it. I can't wait for your next books, dude. Honestly, this is amazing, but the magnets building,
0: building the great, the great pyramid with water episode is, is one of my favorite ones. Um, it, it, it's, it's funny that some of my favorite videos on my channel like the uh, alchemy and magic video, the building great pyramid with water video, those are my videos with the least amount of views. That video has like 300 views. Right up, and it's and Straight it's right up it's, how it works. <laughs> and it's it's some of the best information that I've put out there. And so keep in mind that I try to my personal beliefs are probably a lot more out there than I like to admit because I'm trying to get my theory established within the realm of actual scientific theories. I try not to go too far out on a limb in terms of the really, really far out there stuff. Do I personally believe it? Probably yes. But this is my, so again, this is kind of my gripe about the theories about the Egyptian pyramids being incredibly unscientific. It's basically a lot of speculation that does not have any actual science give me some data, give me some, some numbers or some, yeah. some actual calculations or whatever it might be. And I'm attempting to do that in my theory to keep it out of the realm of speculation and conspiracy theories. So I'm kind um, of tread, tread the waters of kind of being a, a middleman. Like it's certainly not dynastic Egyptian. I'm not hundred percent on board with it be- being built by aliens. Let's kind of settle somewhere in the middle where it's, it's not this, it's not that, but as always, the truth is kind of somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm.
2: In the middle, uh, my dad was a bricklayer, and he often used water saws to cut brick and stone. Yep, so, and, and yep. The contemporary world. Uh so I wanted to get a little bit into decoding magic into history because I think this is kind of a fascinating uh thing that adds to your uh credibility of of saying that there are chemistry plants. Uh because when you decode uh, the symbols and the and the pictures and everything and you show how it could have been a chemical uh explanation in these uh in these pictures it starts to bring out a whole nother dynamic of of what you're saying so can you uh kind of talk about decoding the magic of chemistry with like Louis spear the caud- uh, the cauldron of Dagda? uh you also bring up like the serpents uh the staffs turning into serpents and um green oh, yeah. vitriol yes. green vitriol i've uh i've been talking oh. about vitriol <laughs> lately and uh you you showed a picture of like a green lion uh grabbing at the sun uh so can you yeah. go into some of those ideas uh because i think those are super fascinating
0: yes yeah yeah 100 start with the alchemical depictions right so we see all of these drawings and paintings and images from the alchemical period and the one that you're referring to, it's a, it's a picture of a green lion that is biting onto a golden sun. Mm-hmm. And usually he's pulling the sun out of the water. There's usually water in the picture. There's a green lion and a golden sun. Well, the green lion is actually an esoteric symbol for ferrous sulfate. Ferrous sulfate was being produced inside of New Grange. And when you dissolve gold into aqua regia which is hydrochloric acid and nitric acid you have to have something to precipitate that gold back out of the solution so your gold is dissolved into solution but you want to put something else in there that's going to displace the gold and cause it to drop out and that's what you use ferrous sulfate for which is precipitating gold that's been dissolved in a solution so that picture or that drawing of a green lion biting And pulling the gold and sun out is a depiction of a chemical extraction process of dropping gold out of a solution using ferrous sulfate. So that is how all of these alchemical manuscripts should be read. The superficial interpretation of spiritual alchemy is just the surface layer that is intended for public consumption. That is the great mystery of all the esoteric teachings is there's dual levels of interpretation, one being a spiritual and moral interpretation, and the other having a more practical interpretation. So that's the lion and the the golden sun. In regard to the story of um, the dueling magic in the Bible with Moses and the Pharaoh, I love that story. And I've retold that story from the perspective of chemistry, where they could be two dueling magicians, And they're doing different chemical reactions. They say, well, check out this one chemical reaction. The whole crowd is like, ah, you know, they're terrified by the chemical reaction. And then (laughs) Moses comes in, and he's the superior chemist. And his chemical reaction Mm -hmm. blows the Pharaoh's chemical reaction away. Mm -hmm. But from the perspective of the onlookers, they don't know that these are spectacular chemical reactions. They just think there's some sorcerers conjuring magic. So again, I love that reinterpretation. And you see it even today in like, you know, they'll do college demonstrations of magic. It's all the magic of chemistry because it is so fascinating what can be accomplished. The entire universe, the magic of the universe is predicated on chemical reactions. The reason the universe exists, we are a giant chemical reaction machine that is (laughs) permeated with electromagnetic energy. And somehow this chemistry and electromagnetic energy manifests into three-dimensional life. So it's it's, the mercury. So again, I I just got completely off topic there. But uh, so again, reinterpreting (laughs) these stories of magic. And even if you look at the Bible, like I said, the the turning water into wine, well, there's all sorts of chemical reactions where you can take two clear liquids, pour them together, and boom, turns into a red liquid. Mm -hmm. So all of these sorts of ancient stories, I love just reinterpreting it from a perspective of chemistry because this was an ancient civilization that had that science but not everybody was initiated into the science of chemistry, so it was misinterpreted as being magic. And even when you talk about, so the, the cauldron of the Dagda, so the Dagda was the chief god of the Danann, and he was reputed to be dwelling in Newgrange. So Newgrange is not necessarily a burial, but a dwelling place of this magic god. And he had a number of quote-unquote magic items, the cauldron of the Dagda. Well, if you look at cauldron for more of a perspective of a reaction beaker, where you have a giant pot and you're putting in all your ingredients to make what? Chemical reaction, you know, eye of newt and blood of toad and blah, 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 you know, whatever. Those aren't actual eyes of newts and blood of toad. They're chemical ingredients, perhaps to make a tincture or a medicine or something of that nature, chemistry. And then when you look at the Spear of loo, it talks about a weapon that had to be submerged in water and oil to keep it from spontaneously igniting. Mm -hmm. So if you look at this from the perspective of white phosphorus, white phosphorus is a chemical that we use now for chemical weapons because it burns in oxygen. As soon as this thing starts burning, you cannot put it out. So imagine an ancient weapon where they had white phosphorus stuck on the end of a spear of some sort They pull us out of water, the thing fucking ignites, and they're shooting off rockets of white phosphorus. And the enemies are burning from this, you know, the flesh is centering, and people are smoking on the battlefield, and they're getting ignited by this white phosphorus, getting completely destroyed by this chemical weapon. So imagine that from the perspective of the onlooker, the enemy that is completely terrified by this spectacular weapon, this magical weapon. But really, the guy who's wielding it knows that it's just white phosphorus that they extracted using chemicals. So I love those stories from the ancient world and perhaps reinterpreting, because we always think that these ancient civilizations were so dumb. They didn't have any knowledge. They didn't have any of this, that, and the other. Well, if you look at the mythology, it would tell us something that these civilizations were a lot more sophisticated than we
2: really think. Yeah, man, that's so fascinating. Uh, Also... Uh, Roman uh, did a cult book club and they were talking about werewolves and uh, the, this idea of the dog man. And um, when I saw your video last night of Jesus, uh, when you're talking about Jesus and uh, showing the me- memes, uh, you're talking about how he is probably just an ancient alchemist. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> ancient alchemist uh, in the mystery schools of learning uh, this ancient alchemy practice. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I thought that was super fascinating because there's also, uh, connections to Jesus, of uh, being the dog man and all these other things. And I have another passage from, uh, the book of the beginnings uh, the Egyptian origin of Wait, the Jews.
1: Real quick, let me, let me just tie real quick before you start reading into that because I just want to give a little context here with the like the dogman werewolf connection to the lycanthropic connection to ancient Egypt is that Osiris himself was worshipped in the Lycopolis, where the etymological term of lycanthropy comes from, is an ancient town in Egypt called Lycopolis because they they worshipped the wolf and the wolf was Osiris, which his son was also Anubis. And, you know, also potentially set was his father. There's, you know, (laughs) the brothers are themselves and themselves are having kids with, you know, it's just whatever. But uh, you know what I'm saying? And so that's and so there's that wolf connection there. And, you know, if if Jesus is a cross compatible, shape shifting sort of, you know, famous alchemist, it's just Mm -hmm. like, well, maybe he was Anubis, you know, uh, the son of Osiris. And he might have been a werewolf himself. Or who the fuck knows, man, but so, it's all a trip. And
2: So this is exactly off. why I brought up the Twatha de Danann and the connection to the Duat, because that also connects into the idea of Anubis, the god of the dead, who uh, lived in the Duat. And then um, this will kind of go into that a little bit more. Uh, and this is from also from Gerald Massey. It says, now this birth and origin in Pisces as the place of the vernal equinox can by no possible no possibility belonged to the entrance of the uh collier into the sign 255 bc and it looks as if we should have to go back at least 21,000 more years or 26,000, according to one reckoning for the beginning of the typology and imagery brought on by the mythology my own conclusion is that the people known to us as the Jews had a ramification of rootage in Egypt, extending to the pre-monumental times. And when they came out into Syria, there was among them a fundamental basis of the oldest blood in the men of a race that was at least as ancient as the Typhonian religion. Although it is not called possible, although it is not possible to define the proportions in which the Kamite and so-called Semite were mixed in Lower Egypt, the Hebrew prophets sometimes speak with a sense of primordial unity of the Jews and their dispersion over the earth, which can be followed in their religious, but not in the later ethnological sense. The remnants of the people who were the outcasts of the whole world, who were to be gathered from the four corners of the earth, from Assyria, from Egypt, Pathros and Cush, Elam and Shinar and Hamath, and the islands of the sea were not merely a people dispersed from Palestine. These were the earliest Jews, Jews not in the current accept uh, acceptation of the name, but as the children of Typhon, the Ba'yun being whose name and nature were finally indicated by the Iu, the Eu, or Hu, who of Egypt, the Ihu, Eu of the Hebrews, the Iao, Eo of the Phoenicians. Egypto Gnostics and Greeks, the IE Delphinian Apollo, the Assyrian IU, IU the Mexican and en- Maori AO or AO, Toda, EU, Coptic HU uh, goes through a bunch of these. And yep. uh, you're, you're digging in some very, very interesting dirt right there, man. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. the IU that began as the most ancient genetics and ended as jupater the iu as their son uniting both natures in one he he who was forever the coming one and whose name contains the very expression used in the new testament or translate art through he that should come or do we look for another for the first there is the monotheistic look in the typhonian religion it begins with the worship of the genetrics of the gods the goddess of the seven stars who is one in the beginning. Her son, Sat, the primordial male, is the one god, although he has two manifestations in Sat Anush, two types personified in Sat Har, the one god with two heads. Sat Har passes into Har Maku, a god of the disc worship who becomes triform in Atum. But whether dual or triadic, Sabian or solar, Sut or Aten, there is a look of oneness about this divinity because he was the son of the mother, the Ayusif or Ayusu or Jesus. The Aten disk was a type of oneness and the disk worshippers revered it with f- uh, fervor of a modern uh, physicist. But this monotheism can be understood apart from its rootage and phenomenon. Uh, where we find no relation, whatever, to a supposed conception of revelation of the one God. Moreover, Iu signifies the coming one with twin manifestation, without determining the phenomenon represented. This beune being may be of star god, a moon god, or sun god. He may image the duality of. Uh, Sebti, Sophis or Regulist, the lawgiver of Tahuti, the lunar god or the solar god, Ium Hept. The Ayu may be Sat with ass or his type, or Ayu with the calf, or Eo Sabata, Bacchus, or Ao with Paps, or Ayu Hept. In the long garment of Shu, the young elder, or Kunsu with the twin image of the sun and the moon. He began at, as Sut or the dog star and wolf and ended as a solar Iu, the Ao, the first and the last of the book of Revelation. So I'm going to stop there, but it even says that he is represented as the wolf or the dog. And so you can see that, you know, Obviously, it even talked about this idea of uh, alchemy in there and the transformation where these people came from and how it connects to the dog star, to Osiris, to the transformation process of maybe not just transforming physically, but transforming chemicals into other things. Uh, Configurations. So transfiguration, uh, the Twatha man were God, but not God. They were mythical, but not mythical. They're mystical, but not mystical. It's this. It's this uh, duality that you have here of creating something that's apart. So uh,
0: there is something that you mentioned that little passage, that I'm I'm very fascinated in the history of the ancient Hebrews. And in my personal opinion, ancient Judaism and proto-Buddhism, proto-Hinduism are the oldest religions on the face of the planet. And the knowledge that's in the Kabbalah and mystical Judaism goes back way, way, way before the conventional Hebrew period, circa 3000 BC. It is an incredibly old, old religion. That being said, There's a lot of research out there that indicates that the people that we call the Hebrews now were not the original Jews. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what you mentioned in that passage. There's perhaps an original civilization that practiced this spiritual discipline, but then it was transformed and transferred into a different group of people that existed during that dynastic period. And that's the people that we now know as the Hebrews. Mm -hmm. So where did this original knowledge come from? who was this ancient civilization? And it, all of my research has kind of led me down the exact same path, is that this is the group of people that built these structures. This is the group of people that had all of this information and disseminated it across the planet. Like you said, the 12 tribe, Israel, the two off the day, to non-possibly being the tribe of Dan, leading into Europe and bringing this information with them. So there's a, an incredibly interesting story there. And unfortunately, the historical facts are so dispersed, and you know, they're they're here a little bit here and a little bit there. And it's so hard to tie down exactly what the story is. But there's there's a very, very interesting history there with the, the ancient Hebrews. Like you said, the transition from who possibly was the original situation and the people we call Hebrews now, the connection to the Tuatha de Danan. That is one of the most fascinating, unanswered topics sort of within my realm of research, is who was this ancient civilization? Because again, I I don't think it was aliens, but I do think it was kind of a, a civilization that existed here on this planet that has either been completely extinguished or incorporated somehow, you know, assimilated within the other civilizations. So there's vestiges from this ancient lineage of people that still exist today, but it's just been, you know, hidden and kind of swept under the rug.
2: Not that hidden. Uh it's Atlantis. Uh I mean, even uh, Thoth the Atlantean, uh the Hermetic principles, the Hermetic Code is basically the Kabbalah. So I mean, when you when you look at that and you say where did this come from? It must be super old. Well, Thoth gives you an answer. <laughs> he says I'm from Black No, but Atlantis. it's it's
1: be, it's not that it's hidden, it's being hidden.
2: Yes, correct.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, I, I, I propose that Atlantis is actually North America.
2: correct That see now. I, we've there, been uh we've been going there, on this twofold too uh, there's a lot of correlations between america I, and
4: now you me. made Romy stutter what are you doing I, I, Romy's just, <laughs> you can't even talk now
1: <laughs> this has been a mind mind melter this has been a great one um but now we are alluding to to this ancient other land this other really suppressed ancient hidden mystery of land. the true yeah. destiny of america you know like this because it's like a manifest I to, destiny
0: I to, man we were we were always meant to come back here
1: it's a new atlantis too you know written by francis bacon and going into the other thing about studying the renaissance period that's my area i love i think that's a deep ass part i can't even get out of it right now it's so fucking crazy and talk about being cypherically coded left and right the entire renaissance and gothic period is a complaint the reformations the inquisitions it's just like what
0: well these but, were individuals who were all very well versed in mathematics geometry mm-hmm. science the esoteric and during that period they were finally able to start releasing some of this information because it was going away from the restrictions of the super Catholic Holy Roman Empire and kind of moving into this new period where new ideas were being accepted again. So again, that's kind of what I was talking about. The lineage yeah. of the knowledge has always existed. This knowledge has always been here, but it's just existed in different groups and under different names and you know different teachings and this, that, and the other. And there are certain people throughout time that have brought it to the forefront. The Romans, Romans are complete bastards. Not I, I,
1: my, myself. I'm a And you, you. In, in my entire existence. No, let me tell you this.
2: this. There's <laughs> uh, oh no Roman. Not the Romans. The
1: Catholics. Just saying the, the the, like the Greek Roman period is fascinating, but it's all just syncretically kind of just slightly altered from the ancient Egyptian story, right? It's it's their spin on it. It's like all the same exact story, but it's in the Greco-Roman style. And I don't know, it, it's just,
0: I don't even- I, The Greeks and Romans literally took everything about their civilization from the ancient egyptians exactly that's what i'm saying it's
1: just the perfect syncretism i think it was the first stage of syncretism that we can witness where it's just like we're going to stack completely template our culture on top of this and use it for you know power and rule and that's another thing what do you think about the ancient egyptian uh the, the the pyramid of power during that time? Like that's, that's a large thing that people talk about is that they were incredible power hungry and like stricken kings, uh, things like that. Or do you think it was more of like a unanimous
0: society? So that was one of the things that it never resonated with me as being true about the dynastic egyptian ferial, pharaonic burial hypothesis, right? That these are power hungry, you know, pharaohs who going spend every single cent that the civilization has in building these crazy ancient monuments. That never really made sense to me. It was to me more of um sort of a, a societal benefit, right? Um something that was done for the benefit of the populace at large, again like I said infrastructure projects. It doesn't strike me as something as being, you know, a megalomaniac built this thing. It was something that was intended to benefit the civilization and benefit the people. Um, so, again, I, I think there's a, a misrepresentation of the intention behind the construction of these monuments. It was something that was going to help the entire. So, I have a, a perspective of a global civilization that was industrial, agricultural, And interconnected with commerce, right? So they're trading goods all over the world. We're all producing different sorts of goods. So South America is making gold. Here in Egypt, we're making glass and we're making cosmetics. And in Europe, we're making iron and blah, 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 blah. So all of these, they're sharing it across the globe and sharing ideas. So this was an interconnected system of industrial manufacturing plants that were designed to benefit the global civilization and global commerce at large. Because we have plenty of evidence cocaine mummies okay so how did the coca leaves get into the mummies in egypt when the coca leaf comes from south america yep. well clearly there had to be a connection between egypt and south america and tobacco. how are they finding all of these egyptian beads and egyptian glass found all over ireland and all over mm-hmm. europe well there clearly had to be a connection between these two things so again i'm, I'm i steer away yes. from the the pharaoh building himself the most mm-hmm. massive monument on the planet to where. It was an architect that engineered these things to to benefit the civilization and develop the be, benefit everyone across the globe
2: i wanted uh just to say one more thing with uh R- roman's uh werewolf stuff uh and and your kind of idea of these chemical plants maybe they were using chemical baths uh to do this transformation and and this is the story that comes out of that transformation process of um of the chemicals in the plants and then um i just wanted to say that real quick and then i wanted to open up some questions to ben and and see if ben had any questions uh for jeff uh before we get off the show here because we're kind of winding down we're almost about the two hour mark so ben did you have any more thoughts or questions for jeff you're muted you're muted (laughs)
4: Yes. Uh, way too many uh thoughts and questions i'm just gonna have to grab your uh email from you from him uh from dan if you don't mind jeff um there's a yeah yeah hit hit me
0: up offline i mean this is this is one of those things that we could probably sit and talk for hours and hours and hours on end in this thing there's so many different aspects to look at Mm -hmm. you know it's just one of those things that you chip away one piece at a time and the more you find out the more you realize
2: that you don't know <laughs> that's it man yeah, yeah. you didn't have no Absolutely more no more questions man I, I, got, honor to be here. I got a couple though uh what do you think was the purpose of the sphinx then uh if if they're building giant things uh what was the purpose yeah. of the sphinx what was that doing what kind of chemical compounds were going Good in there question
0: so originally I don't I don't think it was shaped like a sphinx. I think the the construction of the sphinx monument itself was most likely done during the dynastic period like turning it into an actual sphinx. I think that that structure and the housing was the original water intake for the entire
2: Giza plateau system. Yes. I believe that the Sphinx. was so it's a, a, it's a, it's a, a water It's a
0: water pump. intake. It's basically a water pump to pump yep. water into the entire underground mm-hmm. system, and then there just happened to be a, a rock there, and the the dynastic Egyptian civilization when they came around they kind of looked into a line. I don't I don't think it was originally for that. And again, there's there's indications that it's a it's a funnel system to pump water into yeah. the underground.
2: Yeah. I also Man- think it was Anubis and that was the symbol of the underworld or yep. the duat and that connects right back ah. into all of those things. And the mm. the idea yeah, of Robert Shock, of the Rivers. The idea of Robert Shock thinking that the uh, it was uh, water erosion I think it was more so it was a big giant pool of water that's why there was an enclosure around it in the first place and if you look at it there is does seem yep. to be some pump mechanism going on with the Sphinx and that it was actually a water pump so with this chemical idea it actually fits in perfectly of why it would be a water yeah. pump and also when you look at other yeah. uh, stuff with lions you always see them in fountains and uh, everything else mm-hmm, everywhere correct. uh so the yep. symbology is there to signify that it's a a fountain also or or something And so, of water so one thing.
0: thing to keep in mind in regard to the erosion on the giza plateau which robert shock talks about so i propose that they were making acidic solutions inside of these structures yes mm-hmm. so let's say that there was an accident and mm-hmm. something happened, an earthquake, a cataclysm, or whatever. What happens when these acidic solutions get spilled on the plateau? Well, you're going to have significant amounts of erosion. Yeah. And
1: it's like your battery be, in your car when all that fuzzy shit gets on there, it just starts bubbling out. because Yeah. I mean, got a unless, so that's another problem. thing
0: I talk about within my theory is that the interior of these things had to be sealed with a chemical sealer to prevent. Uh, erosion from occurring inside of the structures. Well, I think that some of that the erosion patterns that people say is water erosion, that could also be from a leak or you know some sort of damage to the structure that caused that uh sulfuric or hydrochloric acid solutions to get spilled on the limestone causing that erosion to form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and there uh, is tons of it. There's t- there's tons of indications of water or mm-hmm. some sort of erosion on the Giza plateau i think
1: I think that explains a lot I mean you know that's it's going of a big part of dissecting the, the mysteries of history is the deluge and so figuring out the major the, the major deluge that like the the global correlates on but then figuring out all these like these small deluges in between or looking at um the cosmology of the time the astrological readings of the time that kind of indicate we just talked with tess clark who talks a lot that's her area of kind of expertise is looking at the cause cosmological history and what was happening at times of cataclysms in the sky past you know passing by comets with specific mineral compounds in it that affects the atmosphere and so on and so forth um and so there's there's all of that and you know yeah like the many many cataclysms that have happened here on earth and the, the many times civilization has been destroyed and rebuilt destroyed and rebuilt i love it and hey I'm fucking ready. I'm strapped in, I'm strapped up. My consciousness is fucking soaring for the next deluge. It may fucking happen, you know, honestly. Um, And the people who uh, run the world have been, you know, these ancient fucking families that are lucky enough to have like the deep knowledge might know about it. Maybe it's why they have like deep underground seed banks and fucking mountains side, you know, and lodged in the side of a mountain with all this, you know, extra food storage and shit. Um, And actually, undoubtedly, that is the reason. But i just want to say again oh, so to, so to close
0: on that yes, yes very very interesting story if you've ever heard the story of the hopi ant people yep yes yes right how this how the ancestors of the hopi survived an ancient cataclysm by going underground
2: hmm. i don't think they actually so went that, underground. that's another
0: very very interesting story about
2: I don't think they went underground. i think they went into the mounds and the mounds is what they built and the reason why they're called the ant people is because they built little ant hills and those were like little uh bunkers yep. to protect them
0: little so bunkers. that's another very very interesting quote-unquote mm-hmm. mythological story from north america that mm-hmm. i think if we take this from a real legitimate historical perspective we could start to learn a lot more about what was actually happening during these time
3: periods
1: yeah i think this is fascinating listen to the ancestor stories man listen to the stories
2: i did have uh one one final question if you don't mind and and that is the like the osirian chamber they found like a pool of mercury there and they found like the big sarcophagi what do you think was going in those uh big sarcophagi down in uh the osiris shaft The, the osiris shaft or the serapium I can't remember which one it's called, but...
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's there's two, two different places. So there's the, the Serapium, which is the underground storage container for all of those large boxes. Yeah. And then you also have the Osiris shaft, which is another underground system on the Giza Plateau that also houses some of these large boxes. So I will say this. All of the boxes in the Serapium are made of different materials which is a little bit unusual. Mm -hmm. All of the boxes are different sizes and different configurations. And it's hard to say what this, I have an idea of what the Serapium, I'm kind of like beating around the bush a little bit. So, but these boxes, right, are designed to interact the electromagnetic field. Let me put it that way. Right. And they're hollow for a reason that. and they're made, they're made out of certain materials for a reason. Most of the boxes that you find are always gonna be made out of like uh-huh. granite, quartzite. You very, very rarely find any sarcophagus that is made out of limestone. Mm-hmm. And there's a very specific reason. They didn't use limestone in any of those containers because limestone doesn't do what you need it to do to make it work, mm-hmm. but granite will.
4: I'm very curious if the Sphinx had uh, mercury coming out instead of water. Um, for me, the green lion is mercury, and it eats the sun. There you go. And trans transitions the energy of the sun into the other stars, uh, makes it bioavailable. Right. Um, and especially if you're needing to keep it contained, why would you even? I I just wonder if it wasn't mercury.
0: Yeah, interesting. and there's another very, there's another very interesting substance from the ancient world called red mercury. Mm. Um, this has been speculated to be mm. a fictitious substance. Some say it's real. Some say it's fake. Also yeah. ties into the colors that we've discussed: the black, the white, and of course mm-hmm. the red. Um, yeah. So get one of those stories across the ancient world about red mercury, which is pretty it, interesting. It well, ha- it had to be
1: made, and it had to be made right and it's you know like it's one of those higher sources of you know the initiates where it looks like okay no you can make real red mercury yeah there is deep we're gonna have to rejoin at some point and good just dig a bit deep
0: oh, any any time man no no guys i really had a good time on this one this is the first time that i've kind of done an unstructured just conversing with a couple of dudes shooting shooting the shit. um so no I'm, I'm happy to come on anytime and we've literally just sc- haven't even scratched the surface. Yeah, I mean, this story goes so much deeper than, than For and, uh, sure. well, that's why, so most people that look at the pyramids, they just look at the great pyramid because it's mm-hmm. such a massive undertaking to try to understand just one structure. So I'm attempting not only to decode seven structures, but all of the structures across the planet and put together a story that Actually addresses all of the items that we see. So yeah. that's I think most people just focus on the Great Pyramid because it's it's a lot easier and there's a lot less risk involved. Um, but I'm the type where I'd rather stick my neck out there and see what happens.
1: Best way to do it is boots on the ground, dude. You know, uh, yeah. read it, reading is great. Bring your books with you. Print all your fucking PDFs. Save them on a hard drive. But hit the boots on the ground. Get to these places. Like the more people we have boots on the ground looking up this like alternative shit, we will come up with answers faster than anybody's wildest fucking dreams. (laughs) If we just all start literally working on this shit and we will change the course of our fucking future. If we got enough people, boots on the ground, covering the world looking for the real answers of history we might be able to take the fucking power back and people ask like what can we do to change all this system because it's so fucked up you're like well maybe i don't know taking any sort of action at all might help uh instead of sufficing to the whims and wills let's fucking go you know let's let's go to these places and let's make groups let's build communities that are searching for the truths
0: You know, that's a very good point. And, And to kind of close, I'll say this. And that's, that's my biggest argument against the majority of people that talk about the ancient world. There are tons of channels that do all of this lost ancient high technology speculation, come up with an idea, make a claim contribute something to the conversation as opposed to just regurgitating the same old nonsense, the mystery, the mystery, the mystery. Okay, well, give me an explanation about how it works. What was the machine? How did it operate? What was powering the machine? What were the mechanisms? You know, these lost, the diamond saws and electricity saws that these guys like, how did it work? Give me an explanation of your idea. How did the machine work? And nobody is willing to do that because there's so much risk involved in being wrong. Well, this is what it takes, courage and testicles to like come up with an idea, put it out there. And if you're wrong, that is the job of the scientific community to validate these things. And again, people are so scared of their neck out there. Well, again, I have stuck my neck out there way further than anyone else (laughs) has in history. So hopefully this will be a beneficial process because I'm not scared of the repercussions. If I'm wrong, so be it. At least I made a attempt to come up with something that was scientific and if Fuck i'm wrong yeah. in the process of proving me wrong we will probably uncover even more information that gets us to the right place you know so I've, even I've, if i've come up with one single idea in all of these theories that's right that it's a contribution
1: be a win. it's a fucking contribution to uh, the, the bigger turning the yeah. bigger understanding and the unfolding man
2: well, I definitely major. think you're on the right path, Jeff, and uh, I look forward to more of your research and uh, what else you find and uncover. Uh, so, book two will be out when? To be determined. Work in progress. Nice. Okay, work in progress. It's never done. Uh, Balderson. Soon. Soon. Balderson? Yeah, oh,
0: yeah. That never is, man.
2: <laughs> Balderson, you got any uh, final thoughts for Jeff?
4: Just that. Uh... In my opinion, uh, and Romy and I are gonna test this opinion out, uh, that uh, red mercury was just mercury that was put through the entire alchemical process. When you look at what they're doing with silver mercury, it's just a basic distillation. It's no different than uh, removing an essential oil from a plant, they're just removing the essential oil of cinnabar. Uh, Cinnabar itself being a red uh, crystal um well then if you continued the uh, calcination process which we process, fucking
1: have by the way sorry
4: yeah uh yeah uh, so if you continue the calcination process and break this uh cinnabar down into its uh, finest mineral constituent constituents and remove that and put that back in with the uh portion that you distilled out that's the alchemical that's when you get the alchemical marriage and uh, the alchemical marriage would be the salts of the mer- the salts of the cinnabar being returned back to it and then put back together. Do you think that there's a good chance that that's probably something that they were doing in the uh, in this complex was making the actual red mercury as opposed to just distilling out?
0: Uh, Ben, I am very, very impressed with your knowledge of the alchemical process as being a legitimate chemical operation because it most certainly is. And what you're saying is the exact point, the marriage of the male and the female, the positive and the negative, right? The extract in the body itself. So that's how you get the most potent compound is by the marriage of the extract in the body itself. So you can't have one without the other. So it's the synergy of those two materials when you recombine them that gets you what you're looking for. So I think you're, you're absolutely right on. Um,
2: I just wanted to, and I love people that do, I appreciate that. I just wanted to bring up one more
4: thing.
2: (laughs) One more thing real quick is, uh, when Roman and I talked to Sarah, Sarah Brestman Cosme and she, uh, does, uh, past life regressions on people, uh, she, was doing a past life regression on somebody from Lumeria. And they said that the Atlanteans came and they were taking these red crystals uh, from them. (laughs) And because these red crystals had very high power and they were using them for some type of purpose. So when you mentioned that cinnabar is like a type of red crystal, it uh, automatically made me think of that. And we were going to have Sarah on later in the month um, also, again, so maybe we can get into a little bit more detail about that. She also has another book about the uh Sphinx, so um, yeah, that's my final thought there. Uh, anybody else want anything? We're good, yeah, uh, awesome. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. Jeff, tell to, uh, people
4: just to point out that red cinnabar is an extremely unstable crystal. And what you guys were asking about at the beginning starts out at a brilliant red and it uh, degrades down into a or, uh, orpiment, which is a yellow. Uh, you get your uh, arsenic from that um, or cyanide. Yeah, cyanide. Um, and then that makes it real toxic, but it breaks down and goes through those stages, anyways. The yep. red mercury does, or the cinnabar does. And check out things like the
0: Tomb of the Red Queen mm-hmm
4: okay there's
0: a tomb in south america that's covered in yeah. cinnabar powder
1: yep yep there we go that's that's shit like that dude i love that uh probably sweet book on that yeah but yeah.
0: so so shameless shameless plug yeah.
2: um, go ahead plug your stuff. You get, get it get uh, it get dude uh,
0: instagram at the land of chem chem my youtube channel also is the land of chem chem website is thelandofchem.com. Limited first edition print copies of the book. I've got Land of Chem merch, all sorts of stuff available on the website. Gentlemen, I really appreciate the opportunity, and I had an awesome time talking with you guys this morning. It is almost bowl o'clock for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's right, dude. Yeah. Seven
4: ten somewhere everywhere.
0: <laughs> uh, it's I, been a to, pleasure, I had to man, abstain before time. the. I had to abstain before the meeting, but yeah, it's, it's one o'clock on a Sunday, so
2: it's time all to get lit. All <laughs> good, man. Thank you so much, Jeff. We appreciate your time, uh, Fire Tribe. If you're not down with that, wake, wake. up. <sighs>